Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network brought to you by ZipRecruiter. The best teams start with great talent. You know who didn't have great talent? Kevin Costner's Tigers team and For Love of the Game. It didn't matter. He was able to overcome it with his great talent. Pitched a perfect game. It might have been scripted, but who cares? Sometimes you need current teams and great talent. Well, nobody knows the importance of talent more than ZipRecruiter. They deliver qualified candidates fast. So effective, 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. My listeners can try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Meanwhile, SeatGeek, the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and more. For $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event, Use promo code BS. That includes MLS, MLB, football's coming up, college football. Yeah, everything. Download the SeatGeek app or go right to SeatGeek.com. We're also brought to you by TheRinger.com, the world's greatest website where we are all in on Quentin Tarantino this week for a variety of reasons. We love his movies. More importantly, there's nothing going on this week. So why not own Tarantino? He's got a huge movie coming out on Friday. We have a Rewatchables podcast also coming out on Friday, Reservoir Dogs. Sean Fennessy's Big Picture podcast is doing a whole bunch of Tarantino stuff. And our old Halloween Unmasked feed, we have refashioned that. And what is it called, Craig? Quentin Tarantino's Feature Presentation. Yeah. A special three-episode podcast. Tarantino, we interviewed him in his own words about uh, some movies that he cares about. Go to, uh, go to theringer.com and you'll be able to find it. And check out all the great stuff we wrote about Tarantino this week. A lot of staffers, big Tarantino fans here. Unbelievable. His career's we're finishing up decade number three. Uh, it was really fun to talk uh, about Reservoir Dogs too, which is a movie that came out in 1992 and seems both dated and not dated at the same time. But we really dove into that. Me, Sean Fantasy, Chris Ryan. So you get that on Friday. Coming up. We're going to do a little NBA mailbag stuff at the top and then an interview I've been holding for weeks and weeks. It's awesome. Kevin Costner finally come on. He came on after, God, I don't know how many years I was asking him, but he's here and uh, it's better than I thought it would be. I'll leave you with that. But first, Pearl Jam. All right, I'm going to hit some NBA mailbag stuff. Just so you know, I'm taping this on a Monday. I think all of this stuff is relatively evergreen. If anything crazy happens, don't hold it against me. You figured like the NBA, it's got to get quiet one of these weeks. I figured it'd be right now. We'll get to Costner in a second. You sent some emails. It's themailbag at theringer.com if you ever want to email me. But let's go through a couple of them here. This one is from Owen in Larchmont, New York. He was wondering who I thought would be the Pascal Siakam of the 2020 season. Not necessarily an impact finals player, but someone making a leap. Someone coming out of relative nowhere that we knew was pretty good, but then all of a sudden by the end of the year, we're asking, is that an all-NBA guy? Could that guy be the second best guy on a finals team? All right, so I thought about this question. My answer is this. Here are the nominees. It has to be somebody that's going to be on a playoff team. Um, either a contender or somebody who's one move away from being a contender or 
a team that's just relevant, those would be my three categories for that. So we'll go through all these. Brandon Ingram. I think he has the talent. He's young. The blood clot thing set him back, but supposedly he has a chance to be healthy. That team needs a score. I kind of like the team. I like the Lonzo-Drew Holiday combo. The Zion thing will be fun, but they need a score. They need somebody to give the ball to in the last four minutes of the game. I could see him making a leap. I don't think that's a contender or anything, but they might be a stealth 43-win playoff team. Who knows? But it'll ha- if that, that happens, it'll happen because of him. Next one I would pick is Jalen Brown. And before you say that I'm a homer, I should mention, you know, one of the best guys on a team that almost made the finals a year plus ago. I thought he was really good from January on last year. He had just an awful first two months and then rallied and became a reliable semi-elite two-way guy. And I'm interested to see what he does with more shots on a team that doesn't want to kill each other every week. He's young too. And there is, I've talked about this before, but there's a statistical trajectory with him where Paul George isn't unrealistic. Him having, him being able to blossom like that. Um, every time I say that, people get mad at me, but just go look at Paul George's stats the first couple of years and get back to me. I'm really interested to see what happens with him and Tatum now that they know this is their team. Mark him down. Karis LeVert on Brooklyn. I guess the recipe would be if Kyrie was just awesome this year, which is very possible. He was awesome in year one in Boston. And Brooklyn ends up being a little better than we thought they'd be in a weak conference. And they're stringing along until KD can potentially come back in the spring, next spring, who knows. But Levert's somebody that was looking like a 20-point-a-game guy and is still relatively young. And the big question with him is whether he can just stay on the court. But I think he has the talent, too. The next one, I don't believe in, but I'm just going to mention him, Kyle Kuzma. Just because he's going to be in a really nice situation with the Lakers where he's going to have a lot of open shots He's going to have a lot of support and they actually probably need him a little bit. I'm just not convinced he's anything more than like a 17 and seven. I don't think he's a very good defensive player either. So, but I had to mention him or else the Laker fans are like, oh, you mentioned Jalen Brown, you didn't mention Kyle Kuzma. Well, I mentioned him. The next one is my dark horse. Jeremy Grant. Really liked him on OKC. I think it's very strange to be on OKC. It's a weird team the last few years with Westbrook and then Paul George comes in and you're basically just an ornament offensively and then defensively you have to try your ass off and all that stuff. But I really want to see him on this Denver team that ball movement, offensive sophistication being at a whole other level than OKC. I think he's a really good athlete. I just have always liked his game and They've needed like an elite wing on that team. I don't know if he has the talent, but I have my eye on him. Zach Collins on Portland. You know he's going to play because of Nurkic is out until at least the All-Star break. I don't believe in Hassan Whiteside at all. I like the flashes of Zach Collins in the playoffs, and he's young. I I think he turns 22 during the season. Um, And looks a little like producer Craig. Mm. Looks a little bit like you. Okay. Yeah. A little taller. Josh Richardson, I think, is, is the favorite. And what the guy that uh, I left for last year. We know Philly's going to be good. We know they are going to be one of the two or three best teams in the East. We know they need him desperately to help defend basically the best perimeter guy on the other team. And then on top of that, make wide open threes. And I think he's good. And I think he's somebody that, you know, the average NBA fan just hasn't watched a lot of the last couple of years. And if anything, it was in a situation in Miami where 
they're asking a little too much for him. I think if he's like your fourth banana, fifth banana, he could really thrive. And I'm interested to see what happens with him. I thought he had some good moments last year. So those would be my nominees. If you if if there's anybody out there that I missed, tell me. Next question from Andrew in California. This is a good one. The Knicks are one of the few publicly traded sports teams as part of the MSG stock on the New York Stock Exchange. Can you imagine a ringer-led crowdfunded effort to purchase a controlling share of MSG, then fire James Dolan and take control of the Knicks? The current value of MSG is $6.8 billion. $3.45 billion would give you a 50% stake and the ability to name yourself CEO. Let's make this happen. Oh, I didn't realize I got to be the CEO in this whole thing. This is magnificent. All right, so I thought this was obviously ludicrous. How are you going to raise $4 billion uh, in a crowdfunding effort? Well, last year, a blockchain startup, I think I know what blockchain is. Do you know what blockchain is, Greg? A little bit. A blockchain startup raised $4 billion without a live product. It was a Cayman Island startup. It eclipsed the world's biggest initial public offerings on stock exchanges that year. Uh, it was Block.1. It was funding a blockchain platform called EOS.iOS through a process known as an initial coin offering or ICO. I'm just reading this from, I copy pasted it. A multi-billion dollar fundraising effort more than doubling the next biggest offering in that type. Well, I mean, that sounded pretty sketchy. We could create Ringer coin. Ringer coin. Maybe could we pay for the Nixon blockchain or Ringer coin or whatever? All right. I'm going to look into this, but... All I know is if a Cayman Island startup can raise $4 billion, we could raise $3.45 billion and take the Knicks away from James Dolan. You do think, though, there's probably like conservative estimate, 12 million Knicks fans get one, 1 million of those 12 million to contribute $100? I can't add. I used to be able to add. I got a 690 on my math SATs, which was really high back then. Now I can't add three plus four. But uh, yeah, I'm not going to rule out this uh, this next thing. Ringer-led crowdfunded effort. Yeah, let's do it. All right, next question. Mike in Philadelphia wonders, Adam Silver doesn't catch nearly enough crap for forcing Jerry Colangelo down the Sixers' throat, who in turn hired his idiot son and his huge collars to immediately knock the six off their rebuilding course. But then Lakers and Knicks can somehow continue to be run by like my niece's easy bake cake sale. What the hell is going on here? It's from Mike in Philadelphia. My answer is, you're right. It is a little weird that they intervene with the Knicks. I guess the difference is they intervene with the front office and not the actual ownership. What The problem with the NBA, the NBA is like a neighborhood where some asshole buys the house next to you and at that point, it's his house unless he's selling heroin out of there or, or you know, doing something illegal or it's, it's Jeffrey Epstein. The, the, the NBA really has no power at all to get somebody to sell with one exception. We saw it with Donald Sterling this decade. And we kind of saw it with George Shin way back when, when he was involved. He owned the Charlotte team before uh, Bob Johnson and Michael Jordan. And... Even then, they they made him move out of Charlotte, or maybe he wanted to move or both, and he moved to New Orleans. And uh, even that, they couldn't get rid of that guy. It's really hard. You have to. It has to be like a Jerry Richardson, Donald Sterling type of situation. And even then, the guy doesn't really necessarily have to sell. He could drag it on in court for twenty years. 
So Mike from Philadelphia, I don't really have an answer for you except for you're right. Why did Jerry Colangelo, why was that the one who got forced down the Sixers throat? I will say there has been some revisionist history with the Sam Henke era in Philly where his idea was great, but then you some of the execution of it was pretty, I mean, he did take Jaleel Okafor in the top five and he did take New Orleans Noel sixth and he did it. He did. What was the other one? Oh, Michael Carter Williams. Like his drafting was pretty iffy. His trades were good, and really, what he did that that was probably the most indefensible was he enraged the other teams. They just didn't like dealing with them, and they thought he was arrogant and um, wouldn't call them back, and all kinds of stuff. There's a there's a way to deal with fans and other teams that where you could have a modicum of, you know, civility and interplay, and he just didn't care. So I think from that standpoint, um, the league probably needed to intervene, but the stuff about them just throwing seasons away to get high lottery picks kind of vindicated by Embiid and Simmons. There was some, there was some way to do a modified version of that, that I think would have been really defensible. And, um, the other version of that is what the Lakers did for basically this whole decade where they, they tanked, but it wasn't even intentional. They were just incompetent. So anyway, if you look at Philly's decade versus the Lakers decade, the Lakers were actually probably worse. Next question. Matthew Illman wants to know, with Paul George fleeing OKC one year after re-signing, do you think this adds more weight to your previous argument the Lakers were banned by the league from signing him last year as a penalty for alleged tampering? This was conspiracy bill did weigh in with this a year ago. Um, it would seem now that maybe... Paul George always intended on leaving for LA, but perhaps couldn't do it last year. And now he can do it. It's from Matthew Ullman. All right, here's my answer. Let's just look at the evidence. We heard for two years that much like Kawhi, Paul George wanted to come to LA when he was a free agent because he's from Southern California. He went to Fresno State. Indiana traded him partly because they were convinced he was ditching them for, they thought, the Lakers. And then out in LA, there was just a lot of talk of Paul George's coming here in a year, which on the one hand can be rumors, but on the other hand, when it's LA and Jeannie Buss is rubbing in the circles with a whole bunch of different people and people are saying, I saw Jeannie, she said, Paul George is coming. You never know what to believe, but there definitely was a, a real buzz and a real sense that he was coming in a year and everybody thought he was coming with LeBron. Well, LeBron came by himself. So Paul George loses a year ago in an unhappy um, series against Utah, they lose in round one. And you would think like, well, that opened the door. Now he'll just go to the Lakers. Well, what if he goes to the Lakers with Paul George, with uh, LeBron? Well, he re-signs in late June with OKC without ever meeting anyone, without dragging out the process or getting any attention whatsoever for it, creating any dramatic tension, anything. Even though he was filming a documentary series at the time, which is uh, hilarious in retrospect. It's on YouTube. But that never sat right with me. If you're looking for the spotlight and you have a documentary crew around you, why are you deciding in late June where you're signing? Why not milk it for another week and then do it? All right, so you got that. The timing was weird. You have the Lakers were fine for tampering, which you knew. You have in April, this, this previous, this April that just happened, Magic Johnson mysteriously resigns for reasons that remain unclear. Did Rob Plink a backstab him? Was he upset with something? Like, what happened there? Did we ever know why Magic? Do you, Craig, you have a satisfactory explanation for Magic resigning? No. 
I don't feel good about it. I don't know what happened with that guy. It was almost like he got pushed out. Conspiracy Bill has his eye on it. Then July, out of nowhere, all of a sudden, Paul George wants to trade to the Clippers, not the Lakers. Now the Lakers didn't have anything to trade because they give up, you know, seven years of stuff for Anthony Davis. But I don't know. Conspiracy Bill gives this like a six out of 10 on the Conspiracy Bill scale. I think there's some smoke here. I'm not sure I see a ton of fire. I just do not understand why he signed with OKC last June without playing it out at all or even meeting the Lakers when all we had heard for two years was he loves the Lakers, he loves LA, he wants to play in LA, and then doesn't even have a meeting with the Lakers when LeBron's coming, when everybody knows LeBron is coming. That's weird. All right, next question. This one hurts. This is from Trevor. I almost don't know if I want to read this one. Trevor writes, just reading the tea leaves here. Notice Jason Tatum has not posted anything about the Celtics this offseason on his Instagram or Twitter accounts. He has not welcomed the new acquisitions, nor given the Celtics organizations and fans and fans a bicep flex emoji to, si- to signal approval on anything. What's worse, he congratulated Rogier for signing with Charlotte. He retweeted a Marcus Morris tweet when Marcus Morris couldn't find a team, but was telling everybody it was all right, he's going to find one. And also he happened to go to the same school as Kyrie. He went to Duke and they were actually friends last year. And that's the guy that uh, I'm, we're all happily driving to the airport. Trevor asked, should, should we be worried? I was like, oh, come on. There's no way Jason Tatum hasn't tweeted anything. Well, I go through his Twitter feed. He wasn't lying. There's no Celtics tweets. On July 6th, Marcus Morris tweeted, either way, a go we gone, make it happen. Either way, we find a a make it happen. That's always the mindset. He's using some weird words here. Finna. Finna? Yep. Either way, we finna make it happen. That's always the mindset. What's finna? Finna means fixing to, like going to. Finna? Yeah, like I'm I'm finna eat tonight. Is this my oldest moment of all time? (laughs) No, finna's, I don't, that's okay that you don't know finna. Okay. How does Kyle not teach me about Finna? This is what happens when Kyle's away. So anyway, Jason Tatum retweets this and adds, Trillist! Exclamation point. Always room for a bully. So you have that. And then Rogier signs with Charlotte on June 30th. Bleacher Report says, Terry Rogier has agreed to a three-year $58 million deal with the Hornets via sign via sign and trade per Sham Sharania. Jason Tatum retweets, my dog, three exclamation points, couldn't be happier. Was there a Kemba Walker tweet or a welcome to Boston and his canter tweet? No. All right, let's go back to June 12th. Bradley Beal tweets, Stanley Cup champs, three, four exclamation points, hashtag St. or at St. Louis Blues, hashtag St. Louis forever. And Jason Tatum then Retweets that and tweets, St. Louis forever, three exclamation points. Now, I'm not against that because he's from there and Bradley Beals is guy. I keep, I keep going through and I don't know, Craig, there's just nothing. There's no, there's no indication that he's even on the Celtics since the season ended. So here's my fear. He, from what we've heard, his name was kind of floated around a tiny bit with the Anthony Davis stuff. And how serious that was, who knows, but... If they were going to try to get Anthony Davis, he had to be in the deal. So maybe he heard something. Maybe he didn't like how last season went. I'm concerned. I'm concerned in general. I have not enjoyed the last 12 Jason Tatum months. Ever, really, ever since he came on this podcast, I haven't enjoyed the last year. 
I also checked his Instagram and there's just no indication that he's excited about anything with the Celtics. So the moral of the story is this, Jason Tatum, just retweet an Ennis Cantor, Kemba Walker picture and be like, can't wait to play with these guys. Just do something. Don't make me have to sweat this out. You're, you're only two years into a five-year deal. Um, all right, a couple of DC fans have, have emailed me this question. Some variation of CP3 to DC for John Wall and a first-round pick or two first-round picks. If you're a Wizards fan, you're basically thinking, this is our best chance to creep Bradley Beal. We upgrade John Wall. I'm not going to list all the people. I don't want to embarrass them who emailed me this trade. Um, you're not trading John Wall's contract. And this season, you shouldn't because as Joe House keeps pointing out on this podcast, it's insured, I think, 80% if you can't play this year. So you're going nowhere anyway. Play it out. Have the insurance pay for his deal. Um, it helps with tanking anyway. Go for one more top five pick. And then reevaluate. They, there was news that broke today on Monday that they offered Bradley Beal three years, $111 million extension. If he turns it down, okay, you can still take it to February or whatever. Um, and you know you can get a King's Ransom. And by the way, we just talked about Jason Tatum and Bradley Beal. He's close to the St. Louis thing. That, that could be a possible match because the Celtics, Jalen Brown, might, one of my breakout prospects of the year, but he's also going to be a free agent pretty soon. I think he's restricted next summer. And after watching Jamal Murray get 170 million and some of these other guys um, from his Ben Simmons got 170 million and Jalen Brown didn't get anything. So you have to wonder like, are they in the clock with him a little bit? Would he want to go play for the Hawks? He's from Atlanta. How long is he going to be a Celtic, especially if they haven't committed to him? So maybe that's part of how this plays out, where they overpay a little for Bradley Beal and then put him and Tatum together. I don't know. I'm rambling. My point is this. DC is not trading John Wall. Nobody wants John Wall. There aren't enough picks available to take John Wall. And if you're the wizard, just just wait till next summer and figure it out. And best case scenario, he's in awesome shape and actually brings something to the table. John Wall's contract, four years, $171 million. Oof. I think the only realistic CP3 trade, as we've mentioned 70 times on this podcast already, was uh, was Jeff Teague's expiring and, and Gorgie Dang, two years, 33.5 million. What are the odds I said Gorgie correctly? Mm. Georgie? Gorgie. Gorgie? Gorgie? I think it's Gorgie. God. <laughs> my pronunciation is getting worse every year. I used to make fun of Eddie Manneman for this way back. Now I'm turning it to him. So I think that's the only one. And I got to say, I think, done a little digging on this. Who represents Carl Towns? CAA. Who represents Chris Paul? CAA. Who has a really good interest in Minnesota being good next year and everybody being happy? CAA. Who gets shit done? CAA. I'm in on CAA. CAA makes it happen. I think Chris Paul's on Minnesota for the start of the season. I'm making that prediction. All right, let's take a break. Hey, Rockstar Games, a one-stop destination for quality entertainment and high-end living. Where's that? Grand Theft Auto Online. The Diamond Casino and Resort offers a range of experience for all kinds of players. Try a hand at casino games like three-card poker, blackjack and roulette, play slot machines with a variety of prizes. The Diamond Casino and Resort is an oasis of luxury with a master penthouse that sits beside the roof terrace with infinity pool and stunning views 
purchase a penthouse to become a VIP member, gain access to a series of action-packed cooperative missions as you help property order and triad party boy Tao Chang and the Diamond Staff protect their investment from a hostile takeover by a ruthless Texan oil and gas family. VIP membership also includes access to VIP lounges, high-limit tables, a range of special services via the penthouse phone, including aircraft limo, whole bunch of other stuff. Experience the never-ending universe of multiplayer gameplay possibilities in Grand Theft Auto Online. In the latest free update, the Diamond Casino and Resort access is free with every copy available now at rockstargames.com. I think the most fun thing I did this summer was letting my son finally play Grand Theft Auto. I probably shouldn't have, but uh, he's 11. He's ready for it. And, uh, and he's really enjoying it. It's been fun to play with him. So anyway, check that out. All right, back to the mailbag. All right, a couple more questions. Then we'll get to uh, Kevin Costner, the one, the only. Eric LaPointe wants to know, you've recently nicknamed the 2010s the player empowerment decade. I'm curious what each NBA decade's name would be. It's a great question. So here's the thing about NBA decades. I don't really know if you can actually just name the decades because what's weird about the NBA is the decade actually starts in the middle of each decade. They formed the league in 1946 and you almost have to look at it as 10 year intervals or so from 46 on until we get to the 2010s. If you're going to name the actual decade from start to finish of the decade, I think it just gets tougher. You can do it with some like the eighties are like the bird magic and MJ decade the 90s are the too much, too fast, too soon decade. But like, I don't know what the 2000s were. So I think it's easier to do it the way I answered it here. Here the, I think it's eras, not decades. 46 to 56. This is the white guys decade. There's just white guys. The, the league, you, the, you look at these photos of like the, uh, the Minnesota team, the Minneapolis team George Micah played on and it's just like 12 white guys. They look like they're all shop teachers. Then Bill Russell comes in 56 to 69, that's the Russell era. He's the greatest team sport athlete of all time. He wins 11 titles in 13 years. He ushers in a completely different basketball where all of a sudden now they're allowing black players to play. Congratulations, NBA. Thanks for thanks for letting people of all colors in. Uh, Bill Russell comes in, Oscar Robertson, Elgin Baylor, Lenny Wilkins, Will Chamberlain, and the league just Sam Jones. I mean, there's... and even like about halfway through Russell's career, there was still this unwritten rule that the NBA, you were only allowed like two black guys per team because they were so f- afraid of how the white fans would react to it. It's really some dark stuff. I cover a lot of this in my book, but uh, Russell ushers in this new era and the league starts to change color while he's, while he's there. And by the end of it, the league starts to look like what it looks like now. So then you go 1970 to 1976, that's kind of the ABA Kareem era where Kareem is the best player in the NBA by far. The ABA is now kind of coming. They're grabbing people who aren't done with college yet. They're grabbing people right out of high school. They're ushered. They have the three-point line. They're doing dunks. And it's just like a much more fun version of basketball. Only it's run horrendously. It's a disaster. The courts are bad. The owners are bad. There's no fans for anything. There's barely any televised games, but the premise of it is more fun. And eventually in 1976, they merge. But I think those seven years is the ABA and Kareem. That's how you remember that. 77 to 83, they merge. 
or 76 to 83, I guess. And this is the tape, tape delay cocaine uh-oh era. This is when the league really almost craters. You have um, just a bunch of disappointing superstars. You have drugs just ravaging the league. And you have networks that don't really believe in the product, leading to them tape delaying playoff games and then the finals. In 1981, when the Celtics won game six in Houston, even in Boston, they didn't show that game till 11.30. I went to bed and then my dad woke me up at 11.30 and we watched the game on tape delay and didn't listen to the radio to find out what happened. I mean, this has happened in my lifetime. It's nuts. That leads though to 84 to 93, which I think is the glory days. These are just great times. Bird and Magic, the 84 finals. First time they show the finals every game at night and or in the afternoon or whatever, but everything's live again. Uh, you have Kareem, you have Bird, you have Magic. You have the right team finally wins the 84 finals, the Boston Celtics, seven-game series, just a classic. And that leads to a really, really great 10-year run where the slam dunk contest comes in. David Stern's really wielding his influence. You have an influx of awesome players to watch. Dominique, Charles Barkley, um, Michael Jordan obviously comes in, Scottie Pippen, David Robinson. Malone and Stockton, like you're just Hall of Famers every year just coming into the league. And that, it's a great 10 years. The product was really good. It's What's weird is if you watch the games from that era, they actually resemble the current NBA more than the games from the next era, 94 to 2003, which I call the too much, too fast, too soon era. That's when the wheels came off where you had rookies coming into the league. They're making way too much money right away. Um, it's player empowerment, but in the worst possible way where you have young guys who haven't done anything yet who think that they can control everything. Nobody has to earn anything. Um, there's no mechanism in place to protect people who have gone from being broke kids in high school to playing one year, two years in college to all of a sudden making seven, eight million a year. And everything goes wrong leading to the 99 lockout where they try to basically fix some of the ills that had seeped in. But as we did that, a lot of careers that should have been great just ended up not being that great. Chris Webber, Penny Hardaway, Kenny Anderson, Glenn Robinson, Hope, Vin Baker, Sean Kemp. You can keep going and going. All these dudes who just should have been all-timers and didn't get there. And at the same time, the league, the quality of play was, you know, it was just way too physical, way too slow. You have the playoff games that are like 72 to 70. And... um it just was bad. And everything kind of crested in the 04 Olympics when we got our asses kicked and it's all one-on-one -on -one and just no team play at all. So that leads to the next era, the look in the mirror era, 03 to 11, where the league looks in the mirror and says, we got to fix this. All right, how do we fix this? Let's add a rookie scale. Um, let's add some rules to make the game more fun. Let's get rid of hand-checking. Let's quicken the pace a little bit. At the same time, there's a little more innovation. There's advanced metrics are coming in. Now people know to take more three-pointers. And by the end of 2011, basketball is starting to look like basketball, like the, the basketball that we love now. You have three-point shooters coming in like Steph and Clay. And, uh, and by the 2011, where you have LeBron and Dwayne Wade and Bosch had already happened. You have an old school Dallas team really kind of outthinking them and just playing a better brand of basketball and a smarter brand of basketball and a tougher brand of basketball and, and toppling them. 
the league's in good shape. Unfortunately, we have a lockout that sets us back. We recover from the lockout, and that leads to the player empowerment error. So even though the decision was in 2010 in the look in the mirror, I still feel like the league hadn't really figured itself out. I think the 2012 on is the player empowerment era. Really, that LeBron going back to Cleveland was the better version of that. And now everything that's happened now and shorter contracts that came from the lockout, um, the ability to pre-agency, which was a concept coined by a reader. I wish I could remember which reader said that, that I said on a podcast, I gave it to Jalen Rose. I told him on this podcast, he was going to steal it. He immediately went on 17 of these span shows and stole it. Now pre-agency is a thing. All of that stuff started here. So I think those are, those I would say would be the eras. Um, and I think my favorite era was the glory days. Not just because I'm old and you look back at when, when you were younger and things were better, but it's just 21 teams, bird magic, MJ, the style of play was great. It was just really fun. Uh, I think we can get there again with the NBA. I have, I have faith. We have a lot of talent right now. All right, next question. Andrew in San Diego from the Bay says, can we put some respect? He doesn't use T, he uses K. Respect on Steph's name. The media consensus on the dubs is they miss, might miss the playoffs and the dynasty's over. The last time they were underestimated, after the 2015 championship, most felt it was a result of injuries to other teams. What happened? 73 wins. Well, am I crazy? to think Steph can return to MVP form and the dubs can still contend. So I've heard this a few times and people are acting like nobody is considering this. Well, I, I just want to point out their odds to win the title are 12 to one, which are pretty good. They're over under for wins this year is 49, which is higher than I thought it was going to be. And Steph has the second best MVP odds, five to one. So I think this is on people's radar. I'm looking at their team. I actually kind of like their team. You have Curry unleashed. This is probably his last chance to have like a real monster MVP season, I would think. Maybe he could do it. Maybe he's got a two-year window here. You got Draymond in a contract year who finally realized um, last season that, oh, if I lose 25 pounds, I'm going to play basketball better. Congratulations to him. You have D'Angelo Russell who's only 23 playing on a really smart team that knows how to use guards off ball and off screens and how to take advantage of people who just thrive on the perimeter. I think he's going to be really good for them. And if he's not, they can flip him. But I am in the camp that he's going to be good for them. They have Kavon Looney and Willie Cauley-Stein. I like both of those guys. I'm interested to see Cauley-Stein. I think it'll go one of two ways. Complete disaster or way better than anyone thinks. I'm in the way better than anyone thinks camp, but I like those two guys together. I think they're going to be pretty good defensively. You know, Clay doesn't come back until April, but they have Alec Burks and Alfonso McKinney who can uh, at least give them some swing stuff. They're, they still seem like they're a guy short, but I feel like they're a kind of a stealth favorite to land somebody if they need somebody. I just kind of like the team. I, I would compare it to the 94 Bulls when they lost MJ and everyone just wrote him off. And I'm not saying, you know, they, they have a chance to be as successful as the Bulls. The Bulls, I think, won 55 games. Pippen was an MVP candidate. But I thought one of the reasons they were so successful is the infrastructure of coaching, training staff, just having been there before, not being afraid, 
big game experience, all that stuff can really matter sometimes. And with the, if you look at what, ha- what happened with the 94 Bulls, it was really the experience and the coaching, the infrastructure, and them kind of realizing how to revolve around a different great player. I think the Warriors, I would not count them out. 49 wins seems a little high, only because if Curry got hurt, I think this team would have a lot of trouble offensively, but I'm with you. I don't think the dynasty is over by any means. And if they can hold the fort, be in that five, six, seven seed range for when Clay comes back. And if he can come back, people come back from that injury now and they're and in 10 months they're they seem fine or 90% what they were. So if that can happen, great. Josh from Richfield wants to know five years from now, who's the best point guard in the NBA? Here are the nominees. My answer. Darren Fox, 20 years old. Ben Simmons, Devin Booker, Trey Young, John Morant, SGA, or then Steph and Dame in their mid-30s still doing it. My money would be on De'Aaron Fox. I just think he has a couple levels up to go. I get Donovan Mitchell, I guess, could be in here, but I don't really feel like he's a point guard. I feel like he's uh I just don't think of him as a traditional point guard. If you want to throw him in there, that he's a good inclusion too. I don't really feel like I feel like that's why they got Mike Conley because Donovan Mitchell really isn't a point guard. But Fox to me is like the old school point guard that combines a lot of different guys that I like. Like, like there's some Westbrook athleticism with him. There's some, there's some Chris Paul run the game, doesn't really care about his stats kind of stuff going on. I think he's incredibly unselfish and he's, he's just a top of the line, awesome teammate. And I just like that guy. When you think about how Phoenix could have taken him fourth and put him with Booker, and instead they took Josh Jackson. Oh, my God. Or Philly could have taken him first. I mean, they wouldn't have, but man, some teams kicking themselves. JP in Des Moines wants to know, you guys have danced around this on multiple podcasts, but haven't zeroed on the perfect new nickname for Kawhi. Kawhi-zer Soze. So I guess... I'm down with this. I don't know what the deal is with usual suspects. Have we canceled usual suspects? Is it done? Because of Spacey? Like, we're, are we not allowed to have fun with that movie anymore? I don't know. I need I need a ruling from the outrage police. Um, I like Kawaiser Soze, but I don't know if usual suspects is just out because Spacey is the key character. And it. we're just, I assume we just kind of send that to the Pacific Ocean and don't think about it again. But I like Kawaiser Soze. Uh, speaking of movies, Hartley wants to know, if you do the rewatchables for the town, which by the way, we're doing next month, he says the whole movie hinges on John Hamm extracting the Fenway robbery plot from Blake Lively. Why would Renner's deadbeat sister know the intricate details of their next heist? She's a total liability and this is the not fucking around crew. Even if she knew they were up to something, how would she know enough to spoil it? Didn't make sense she would even have the info. Ruins an otherwise great movie for me. Um, it's a whole... I got to think about it some more before the rewatchables. It's tough. If anybody can come up with a good explanation for this, please help the mailbag at the ringer.com. It's tough. I also think, um, man, that I don't want, can I, is it, I can spoiler the town, right? It's been 10 years. Yeah. I just think the bank teller gets arrested, Rebecca Hall. I think there's just overwhelming evidence that she was colluding with these guys, even though she wasn't. And then Ben Affleck leaves town at the end and leaves you know, five million bucks with her or whatever it was. And then she goes and does this ice skating rink. Like how, 
what does she just drop the money off? There's there's a lot of nitpicking stuff there. But I think at some point, John Hamm's like, you were in on this bank robbery all along. Where's your cut? And she's just in jail and they're just trying to get information out of her for five years. Well, we'll find out more of the rewatchables next month. Me, Chris Ryan, Ryan Russell. Last question is from John L. in Scotland. Shout out to Scotland. He says, sad but true. The 2020 Lakers are basically the Pelicans from two years ago. Just replaced Drew Holiday with a 35-year-old LeBron, Miritich with Kuzma, and Boogie with a fragment of his former self. They even still have Rondo. It's pretty good. I mean, as you know, I'm pro-Laker bashing on this podcast. The most confusing thing for me, I was thinking about their team, and I'm the same person who genuinely believes Davis is a good MVP pick at eight to one. And I think he could just solve any problem they have just by being incredible and kicking ass for a season with LeBron as, as uh, you know, his the 1B to his 1A. If those two guys are aligned and kicking ass, as Kevin O'Connor pointed out in, uh, on the ringer.com on Monday, the rest of this stuff doesn't totally matter, but it still does matter because we see in basketball every year, you need seven, eight guys. And you need Fred Van Vliet and you need, you know, JJ Barea and Eddie House and James Posey. You need all these dudes, but you also need a happy team. I'm looking at the Lakers. I can't shake the fact that LeBron and Davis succeed at the same position, the four. And if they're gonna, if they're gonna play together, Ideally, you'd want Davis to play the five. Well, he doesn't want to play the five. He wants to play the four. So then you sign JaVale McGee and Boogie Cousins. They're going to split time. Can't play those guys together. So now I'm going to have LeBron and Davis and Boogie Cousins or JaVale, the three of them playing together. That seems a little weird because you basically have to have Davis defending the other team's best forward, offensive forward. The other two guys are going to do it. Well, where do Kyle Kuzma and Danny Green play then? All right, maybe you could play Danny Green at two guard. I can't play Kuzma there. Um, I also have KCP and Jared Dudley. Those guys are, you know, two, they're small forwards or there are two. But then I also have Rondo, Bradley, Quinn Cook, and Alex Caruso. I just can't figure out. They have one, two, six, eight. They have 12 guys. I think at least 10 of those guys are going to be expecting to play. And their best lineup, of, if you just said who are your best five guys, is probably LeVon, LeBron, Davis, Boogie, Kuzma, and Danny Green with LeBron at point guard. So he, who's guarding Dame Lillard? Danny Green? I, I, there's just, I can't wrap my head about the, around this roster. And I, don't, I, I feel like there's one more trade coming with Kuzma. Now, people think Kuzma's going to sign with Clutch, and people have thought that's going to happen for a while, and he just got rid of his agent. And it seems like Kuzma is in on the clutch wagon, but I can't like Bradley was one of the worst offensive players in the league the last two years. Rondo really has not been reliable for five years. Quinn Cook, okay, I guess. Is your 11th man, maybe Caruso? Advanced metrics were pretty good on Caruso playing in meaningless games, but uh, I'm not a KCP fan. I just can't. I can't figure this team out. And if you're playing LeBron, Davis, and Boogie, then Kuzma's the odd man out at that point. And Kuzma's playing for, I think, a contract extension. or No, not a contract. A year from now, a contract extension. But I don't know. It's a weird team. 
I have the same feeling about it that I did with Philly last year, where it just seems like there's a piece missing or they're one move away from being more interested than they are now. All right. Uh, if you want to email any mailbag questions to us, do it at, do the mailbag at the ringer. All right. So this Kevin Costner pod, I really wanted to go two hours with them. I made the mistake of not seeing how much time we had beforehand. And it turned out, I think we had like 75, 80 minutes, something like that. So I'm going to have to bring him back. Yeah. As you'll hear at the end, he's going to have to come back, but he came on to promote Yellowstone, which is just a juggernaut. I think it is the most watched show of the summer. It's season two. It's happening right now. You can watch it. You can catch up on old episodes, but he's on it and he's obviously the biggest star in it. And he's one of the biggest stars of the last 35 years. I've been dying to have him come on. You'll hear all the stories of our background. And uh, man, this is great. Kevin Costner right now. Been waiting for this for like five years. <laughs> you even came to a Grantland anniversary party. Yeah. And I was like, I got to get you on a podcast. Yeah. You seemed mildly, relatively interested. Not really. Then I saw you last year and it seemed more realistic. And now you're here, Kevin well, it was, Yeah, the, the, the first one was a party. So you're kind of going, you know, let's say also understand I was like raised with wolves because it's like, <laughs> what's a podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can tell at the anniversary. Yeah. I don't we, know if we're going to like drink something. <laughs> I don't know what, what's a pod. I mean, there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of nomenclature, some, you know, with, with stuff, you know, yeah. uh, and you go, and I'm, I'm here to name my kids. What, what is that? So podcast was really, I'm not sure. You basically did a podcast at my house at the anniversary party because it was like five of us and we were just asking you questions. Yeah. And then at the end, I was like, this is what a podcast would be like. We, we just oh, record this. Yeah. Well, that was worth it. That was worth it. No, and the dinner was, I knew we were, I knew we were headed for each other. So. Yeah, it was going to happen. Yeah. It was bound to happen. And you you live outside LA, so you I don't do. come in that often. You've uh, been with Santa Barbara like forever. Yeah, I went out. Well, I went out there 15 years ago. I, you know, I, I I married a second time, and um, you know sometimes women they really help you with things. I, I would it was a beach pad, and uh, I bought it between Revenge and um, Field of Dreams. Like, yeah. I had a nightmare experience up there. You know, I had four days in between these movies. Long story, but uh, where I stayed. My kids were in rose bushes. They were in all kinds of, it's like, this wasn't relaxing at all. And I kind of made my first movie star thing. I, I, I called up a realtor and I said, uh, um, hey, I, I got to, I, I, I need to see property on the beach. And the guy goes, hey, I want to see houses. And I said, I don't want a railroad. I don't want a road. I want to like walk on the beach. And they go, yeah. well, when do you want to see this? And I said, I'd like to see it today. And, um, <laughs> And they, they said, well, well, we can't do that. But 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 let me look at some listings. Can, can you go tomorrow? I said, yeah, we'll go tomorrow. I bought that place uh, that same day and uh, looked at five and bought it. Just it was I, I could flex where I never could flex before in my yeah. life financially. I said, I, I need this and started to go ever since. And when I um, finally met my, my second wife, we would go up there and she did this really simple thing. She said, um, why do, why do we, uh, why are we going back to LA on Sunday night? Why are we doing that? Yeah. I go, I go well, because I, I, I work. She goes, well, do you have work tomorrow? I said, no, but I, I have to do meetings. She said, what kind of meetings? And I'm going, well, I, you know, I would like a you know, meet. Yeah, I got to keep, keep things going. She goes, she goes, well, don't you think those same people would come up here? Oh yeah. Cause I, you're I just, pretty powerful at I, that point. Well, it, but, but she, you, 
you know, your power is always in if you think that's what you think. I mean, I yeah. never felt like I could flex. Suddenly, now I can flex. I kind of hate that personality to begin with. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I don't like I don't like that to begin with. I always thought I kind of had power, just the power to say no. But the but the thing that she did coming into my life was, you know, if you're conservative, you think that you have something to do on Monday when if you're brought up in a blue collar background. Well, I, I go to work, and she goes. She just kind of opened my eyes like the scales came off. And she did it really gently. And, and it was like, why are we going back? She goes, just because you think you're supposed to be back on Monday. Because I grew up in a family where you had one week vacation. And then my dad worked there 20 years. And he got it the second week. Yeah. And you go to back to work on Monday. I remember that. I go, wow, we're in Yosemite. Why are we going? But we, we had to because that's what my dad did. And she looked at me and she goes, why don't we stay till Tuesday? And we did. And we started where she kind of. I mean, I should have been old enough to think for myself, but it took her to kind of do that. And then, and then when we got married, we, we moved up there and we've been there for 15 years and, and I wake up on the ocean every day. I was flipping channels two weeks ago and Night Shift was on with Michael Keaton and Henry Winkler, yeah. which is one of my favorite 80s movies and was the movie that made Michael Keaton a star. Yes. You're in this movie. You're in the morgue. There's a big party in the morgue after they have yeah. all these call girls. And there's Kevin Costner. Right. Um, one of the frat guys um, helping somebody do like a beer chug or something. Yeah. This was like 1982. It was. It was, was that a, your first break? It was. Well, it, not so much. My first, I, I'm, I, I tell you, my first break was when I finally started to listen to myself. And when you co come from a conservative background, you're always, you know, kind of in a pleasing mode. You know, when yeah. you rock the boat. My brother was in Vietnam. Last thing I wanted to do was be a pain in the ass to a thing. So I kind of grew up playing by the rules, playing by the rules, going to go that particular direction. And one day I, I, I thought I, re I really needed to think for myself. Now, most people listening, I was like, gee, Kev, I, we all think for ourselves. But I didn't sometimes. I wanted to please. Yeah. And uh I knew I needed to get out of that business and and chase my own thing. So that was probably the biggest break I ever had in my life was I actually had an internal conversation with myself. I said, you can't just be pleasing everybody the rest of your life. You have to do what you know you can do, yeah. even though no one and, – and go that direction. But Did to, you know you wanted to be an actor or you were no, just a handsome guy who if, knew you should no, do something? No, but I, I knew I was a storyteller and if, if I kind of retraced the breadcrumbs of my life, I see – you know, I grew up doing music in the Baptist yeah. church. I grew up doing poetry. I grew up writing stories. So if I look back, but the reality was I never, I thought people that were on the screen were born on the screen. I didn't yeah. compute that you could just do something. I also came from the background that if you're going to do something, you would have been taking drama in high school. And I said, well, the people that did drama in high school were nerds. I yeah. didn't like that department. <laughs> I didn't want to hang out of it. I went to Cal State Fullerton. Yeah. I found myself want the breadcrumbs again. I wandered into that theatrical department. Everybody was barefoot. Everybody smoked cigarettes. Everybody sat cross-legged on the floor. It was a very bohemian thing. And I thought, I'm not interested in that either. That kind of, you look the part. Yeah. And so I kept brushing up against it, been, being pulled back away from it. But finally, when I looked back, I said, I I can do this. I I like this storytelling thing. And I'm going to, I'm going to burn my ships. I'm I'm burning my ships. I'm so the, bi the big show was then your next big break, well, then, but then you get cut out. You get cut out. But I, I want to go back to that thing you mentioned about um, uh, night shift. Night shift, because there's something kind of interesting happened there. Yeah, I uh, um, 
I was asked to go down and read. There was a movie being cast in Hollywood. And uh, I was a stage manager at Raleigh Studios. And I was asked if I could go. And I said, well, you know, I, I said, and they go, look, you'll get your SAG card. I was having a hard time getting my SAG card. Yeah. So they said, if you go read, it was it was for Flashdance. I read oh, opposite wow. every girl in town that was up for that role. The most beautiful girls, young girls, and girls that we all know today yeah. came through there. Demi Moore, uh, Sean Young, all these different people. I mean, you just keep going right down the list. And I read, I read opposite, but I, but what you have to understand is I was glad I was doing that every day. It was a scene where I was getting slapped the shit out of. And, and um, Michael Nury, who ended up playing the part, uh, I was never intended to play the part, but the big deal was I got 325 bucks. It was, it was scale. I'd never made that kind of money. Yeah. I was working at Raleigh Studios for $3.50 an hour. And so... I got my SAG card, the thing that I had been wanting. And it's really funny in life, you know, if just, you know, what, you know, if you get your SAG card, you, you know, everybody goes, well, do a commercial. I was, well, it's not that easy. You, yeah. you have to do it. Actually, it was Francis where I got it. But the reality was because I had my SAG card, I could do that reading. And then right after that, somebody said, they just saw me and they go, hey, we're, you and B, we need some extras and we got to pay him SAG. I did the Netflix thing. I did Francis, or I did night the shift. night yeah. shift thing. And then a day later, they were shooting Francis with Jessica Lange and Sam Shepard on yeah, the same line. Yeah, that was a big movie. And I, they, were, they needed another SAG that maybe he's going to say something, maybe he's not. I don't even know my own biography anymore. But the reality was- I probably know within, it better than you. Within five days, I had done- uh, night shift table for five and um and and francis. francis all for sag and i just i just kept going 360 bucks 360 <laughs> bucks 360 bucks it was like four days of it and it was a big deal for me yeah it was a really big deal did you think the big chill you thought you were going to be in that movie with flashback scenes and stuff right which you filmed yeah i thought i would be and at the end of the day it, it didn't make it you know um uh, it, I think it, you're you lived on in YouTube. Yeah, I think there's some deleted. Yeah, costume but everything YouTube. happened for me in that particular movie that needed to happen. I was around the right guy and the right actors at the right time. Wally Nasita, probably the most important, not the most important. That's a that's a weird title, but she's a casting director. Yeah, she's tough, really tough. I didn't figure a person like her would even like me, but she was a force of will for me and. And Lawrence Kasdan had just come off the uh, uh, body heat. And now he's doing the big chill. And, um, you know, a lot of times a studio has to approve everybody. Larry was going to. And had any, didn't he rate Raiders too? Like he, yeah, he, he was, he was. He wrote Continental Divide, Raiders yeah. and Empire. Yeah. So he was, uh, his trajectory he's was a like guy. this. But he was, he was it. And he, he really, you know, was incredible. And it, so now. He's doing body heat was just blew people away. It was so good. Yeah. Uh, now he's doing the big chill and he's casting all the the young actors that are really you know out of New York, out of Juilliard, and he had to run those all by the studio. But there was one part that he didn't have to run by the studio. It was just could be him, and at least that's what I was told. And Wally kept saying this guy, this guy, and he gave me the part. And um, Everything I kind of based a lot of what I do came out of that experience. So not being in the movie, people don't understand. I didn't look at my movie as a one-and-done situation. I mean, I guess if I was in some state and a movie came in, like the circus, 
and they said, hey, do you want to do these lines on the street corner? And now I take everybody to theater and the yeah. line's not in there. Maybe my career is never. But I had a bigger idea about what was going to happen. And when I was cast in that movie, I actually knew at that moment everything had happened. Yeah. Regardless of what happened with that movie, everything that needed to happen for me at that point did. Well, that more importantly, Kasdan liked you and decided to put you in a movie. He did. He put me in a second one. He put me in Silverado. But it was the the moment I got the part, I knew my life had changed. Not the moment I filmed it. Yeah. Not the moment I went down the red carpet. Not the moment. It's like, listen, people can look at a game and tell when it's lost. True. People can look at a season and tell when it's over. You know, people can look at a moment. And I, I kind of choose to look you know, at things really athletic. I even direct with a chalkboard sometimes. If I get into a big action scene, yeah, I, I get a chalkboard out. And so you got to be here when this explosion's happened. This is where you got to be. You're like Belichick. Yeah, this is where you have to be. Because most people, what I realize when you're looking at them and they're giving you chin boogies, their head's going up and down, they're really saying, quit looking at me, don't talk to me, I don't know what you're saying. Right. But they're doing that. And so when that bomb goes off and they don't go and you think, what the heck happened here? I was really clear with them. So I thought, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm getting a chalkboard. When that goes off, you're here. Yeah. And then when his head goes up and down, there's a visual and he's not frightened. But a lot of times, young actors or whatever, they're doing this, but they're, they're not getting, they're just thinking, don't look at me anymore. Yeah. And you move off. They move so, off. You, so Silverado... I remember that one, but the one when I, the first movie I remember seeing you in was American Flyers. Yeah. People think Breaking Away is the best bi bicycle movie ever. That's, that's a whole, it's, it's the consensus. I'm an American Flyers guy. Interesting. I just love that movie. Yeah. And it was on cable for like two straight years. Yeah. And that's how I saw it. It was just on HBO and HBO and 2 when over and, and over when again. you're on detention and being oh, kept yeah. in a room, you, you know, you're, you're like Papillon when you walked out of there, you know, 10. Remember when yeah. he took that extra oh, step? Yeah. Remember he, one, two, three, four, and then he went five. <laughs> right. That was a great moment in that movie. That, yeah. That, that, that thing, it really, that's like one of those things when a writer hits something so perfectly that you can't explain life in prison and then, taking that extra step was like, you know, I, I love the poetry of stuff like that. So you were like the, one of the best bicyclists in the world was the gimmick, but you were, you were dying. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And you were like in crazy shape and the bike scenes are like incredible in yeah. that movie. And they, there's, what was it called? Like the hell on the something. Yeah. Hell on Hell in the West. Hell in the West. They're shooting helicopter yeah. shots and like you're doing all those stuff and you're in like crazy shape. And that was, that movie was successful. But I think coming out of that, yeah. people are like, all right, that guy's somebody. I'm a, I'm a breaking away fan. I mean. Yeah, it's a great movie. I'm a breaking away fan. I'm like, a, you know, it's like, I, I thought that was great. But the writer was the same writer. The same writer who wrote Breaking Away. Wrote, oh, yeah. Yeah. And what was his name? Steve Tesich? Tesich, yeah. Tesich, yeah. Tesich. And, and we lost him right away about two years after that. But that ah. guy, I think, would have been a friend for life. There was something about him that was um, really, I really liked him. He was a real deal. Well, when people, you know, you're obviously the goat for sports movie actors. You've been in what, six? Could be, yeah. American Flyers always gets left out. Yeah. They always they always go. Drafted and they go. Out. Yeah, they, they you've been in like six or seven. Pancake eating. <laughs> well, draft day came around because they yeah. actually. It ha I want to talk about that in a second. 
No Way Out was when it all took off, right? No Way Out was a movie right after Silverado. I had been called by Orion. They wanted to have a meeting with me. So I went and talked with a guy named Eric Pleskow. Yeah. There was four guys that really ran Orion. Mike Medavoy, Bill Bernstein, Arthur Krem, and, and Eric Pleskow. And they'd seen Silverado, which was a, a catchy movie. Yeah. I had a scene-stealing kind of part. You can see it on paper. It's like, you know, a lot of people go, oh, that person stole stole the movie or whatever. That can happen on Broadway a lot with really cagey actors. In film, it's on paper already. Yeah. You can see, unless you're just a dummy, you go, <laughs> I can, you can steal this movie. And, and But you're not supposed to steal it. You're working with everybody. You can tell what the flashy role is. Silverado was all of that for me. That was a. And, Did and you think the, about that when you started writing stuff like that, how creating roles like that for people? No, I, I yeah, you think about it, you just know it. But you know, you, you want that to happen. When I'm a leading man, I, I need people to do the dance. I've always embraced the idea of somebody stealing or seeing stealing things because I know where I stand. I know how yeah. it works. And uh, but that particular movie, uh, I knew had that kind of juice on it, and so I get a call from Orion. So let's come, we'd like to talk to you about movies, you know, and and they pointed out some movies to me and all of them I didn't really, really care for. And I said, I said, but if you really want to do something, I did read a movie that I liked. And they said, what was it? And I said, it was this movie over at Warner Brothers called Finish With Engines. And they said, what? And I said, it's, 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 it's really good. I said, I'd do that movie with you. And so they read it and they liked it. Finish With Engines is a naval term for shutting down the engines, you know, yep. those, you see on the Titanic, you see all that full ahead, one third, those brass things. Yeah. Well, at the very bottom of it, in the naval terms, is the last thing. It says "finish with engines" when you turn them off. Right. That became no way out. Oh wow! So it was a movie I had found, and uh, and said to them, "I'll make this movie," and so they did. And that movie came out really well, but they did a they did an interesting thing. That movie was shot before Untouchables. And so I went right from No Way Out to Untouchables. And what happened was Orion was not, it was called a mini-major, kind of smaller movie, although they were making Oscar movies. Yeah. They didn't have the kind of dough that the big studios had. And so they looked at it and they go, we're going to let Untouchables come out first. And then I came out, they held it, and then came out about two months later. Oh, wow. Out. I don't, I feel like now looking back, I always thought No Way Out came out first, but I it guess It was you're shot right. first. Yeah. But they, but they played, and I, and I was thinking, what's going on here? Well, they, well they're going to let that go. All right, well, I like No Way Out. I think it'll work. But they played that and used the, the drum roll that came with that movie and rolled into No Way Out. So they played, a, they played an interesting chess game with that movie. And No Way Out's one of those movies. It's always on cable still, even all these years later. Yeah. Um, it's just one of those movies that is always going to work. Yeah. The spy thing with the twist at the end, and it's just well, I met, somebody somebody I met Sean Young on that Flashdance thing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I met Sean Young, and I thought, this girl is classically beautiful. This girl looks like a girl from the 40s, you know what I mean? Like, you know, those black and white traditional headshots. She looked she looked like that, and I, re, I remembered her, and I— and uh, I mean, people thought she was going to be an A-plus lister at some yeah, point. She's, yeah, she was she's, a little too yeah, wacky, right? Didn't always go the way she probably wanted. Yeah. But, but she was perfect for us, and uh, she was perfect in that movie, and, uh, you know. So, but I, but. Um, and then in Untouchables, you're in with De Niro and Connery, and all of a sudden you go from four years, you get cut out of Big Chill, yeah. and now you're in a movie with De Niro and Connery. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, that was that was, 
and and then then at that point I knew I was going to direct, and you know people were think I didn't direct yet, but I was already headed that way because I worked at Raleigh Studios down here on Bronson, you know, right across from yeah. Vermont. That's what I knew I was going to do, and sometimes people said, "Well, you know, you you know you know well you're moving kind of quick," and I'm thinking, "What are you talking about? I've been waiting forever to do this because this I happened didn't, a little I didn't older. Emerge, yeah, I didn't emerge as yeah. an 18 year old. I I didn't have that moment, that risky business moment of going across and, you know, being, it was later, but that was a function of me deciding in my senior year in college that this is what I was going to do. You know, they always say that about celebrities that the mo- the age you become famous is the age you're trapped at. And if you become famous when you're older, it's a huge advantage. I think Clooney said, I think this is like a Clooney thing Yeah, because Clooney was always like the best thing that ever happened to me is when everything hit for me. I was like twenty nine, yeah, thirty one. That's kind of where it hit. That's kind of where it hit hit for me. And and um, and you want it earlier. Trust me. Yeah, you yeah. think you're deserving of it. You think you're better than everybody else. It's out there. You you can't figure out why it's not whatever. But it's it's a bigger thing. But as I was working at Raleigh, I was always thinking I'm I'm going to direct. So what happened was as as this kind of my trajectory was moving the way it was moving. I had. That was in my mind. You're thinking like this is all leading to me getting to That's direct right. my own movie. Yeah. What What was your experience with fame? As it like ballooned all of a sudden, at you went from you're just walking down the street. And, yeah. I and now all the of a sudden you're fan, like this guy. First, people are staring at. You know, I it's funny. I, I I one of the first things I went to, I was asked to by Mike Medavoy. He said, "Would you? I want you, I'm going to go to this lifetime. He was busy. He'd have to go to all these functions around. I didn't even know the terms of things. In fact. On the night of my Oscar, I didn't go to Spago's or any of these places, and I think I pissed a lot of people off, but I had no idea that you were supposed to. Yeah. I People have no idea that I didn't really even know about the world except that I just wanted to tell stories. Yeah. I didn't know the, the culture of it. I didn't know the whole thing that, that you make the rounds. I didn't know what was going to happen with our movie, so I got a restaurant— with a hundred people that 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 worked on the movie and and got sixty seventy tickets for the Oscar and said, well, we'll be together. So I never made the lap. I would, and people a, are like that fucking cost. Yeah, what a prima donna. I had no idea. I was sure they weren't going to let my fifty friends in. Right. And and uh, but I didn't know that that was a thing that you did. And so you know, it's really 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 strange. I forgot where we were at. We were we were, we were basically like when when the trajectory fame, just yeah, yeah. flipped. Well, it would, you know, I I think maybe what George was saying too. It's like I wasn't that impressed. I was just anxious to keep working. Yeah, that's where I was playing. That's how I played myself out. But the first time um, I was saying that I went to a function, Mike Medavoy asked me, and he said, "Hey, I'm going to go to this Lifetime Achievement Award," and I had no idea even what that was. I know I must have lived in a cave, like I was saying, and so I, I go to the the Beverly. Not the, the Hilton or something, right? Yeah. Where they do a lot. Golden Globes are. And it was for Gregory Pack. And, yeah, I knew who he was. And yeah, I yeah. loved who he was. And I remember walking in and the bulbs going crazy, flashing. I mean, blinding. And I walked in and, and uh, I, I don't think No Way It Out had come out yet. And not a camera went. Not a camera went. But I went in and watched one of the great ones, one of the the greatest of all, for sure. Uh, he really is, and uh, that was impressive to me. And four or five women who'd worked with him during the course of his career stood up and talked. And that part, I, I, I'm kind of in love with the the poetry that our business can be. Not a, not, it's not always necessarily is. 
I, I love the, I'm a romantic about what, you know, we can do and what we can be. Let's take a break to talk about M&Ms. One of my favorite parts of kicking back to watch a game or some movie I streamed is enjoying my favorite treats, game day treats, movie treats. Well, you can take it to the next level with the new M&M's Hazelnut Spread Chocolate Candies, guaranteed to deliver a delicious combo of hazelnut spread and milk chocolate in every bite-sized piece. It's going where no hazelnut spread has gone before, right inside M&M's Chocolate Candies. Oh my God. If you love M&M's Chocolate Candies and you love hazelnut spread, just wait until you try these together for the first time. Enjoy them on their own or use them to dress up your other favorite treats. Imagine them baked into cookies or sprinkled on top of your go-to ice cream flavor or my go-to move with M&M's. You make popcorn and just dump the M&M's in the popcorn. They get a little like melty. I love those. That's, I am a huge M&M's fan. That's how they make the, do you know they make the giant M&M's now? Giant? It's like an M&M bar. It's like a oh. chocolate bar with like big m and I mean, they just continue to delight me with all the stuff they're coming. But check this one out. Go hazelnutty and try the new M&M's hazelnut spread chocolate candies today. Was there, was there some point where you just felt like you could get any movie you wanted? Because everybody has that run when they yeah. become like red hot. Did yeah. you have word like projects just getting thrown at you? No, they were, they were being you thrown. You didn't know which one you know? to do and all that well, stuff? Well, listen, you know, I... I um, uh, I postponed dances because I didn't, I didn't have my ending right. Yeah, I, I didn't have it right, and I, I didn't want to shoot. And then, um, and I, so the movies I put in front of it were Field of Dreams and Revenge. And because I waited, because I knew that the ending wasn't right, I watched really, really carefully, much probably more than I, I was, I was always educating myself but in a way the gun had gone off and I go I'm going to be directing this time next year yeah and I really was watching close um and so people we listening. skipped Bull Durham though huh we skipped Bull Durham though didn't it go Bull Durham Field of Dreams yeah Revenge yeah. and then Dances yeah I was but but I really focused on uh yeah the, the Field of Dreams wasn't supposed to happen I you know um it just wasn't supposed to happen I uh it was a movie that was um, going to go the same time as Revenge, and and basically Revenge just kept getting postponed, postponed, and I finally, you know, I, I just said to them, "Look, I read this little movie about the corn, and uh, I really like it. And if you don't sort this out, I'm going to do that." And it was a Ray Stark, a legendary producer, a tough guy. He said, "I'll sue you," and um, I said, "I know, I know. That's that's kind of what comes out of your mouth," and. Uh, and 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 reminded him at some point that he was a smart guy. Aren't you a smart guy? Yeah. And I said, you need to figure this out because you stretched me too much. So I did those both of those particular movies, and that's when I came to dances. And again, we've woven a tale, and I think I've forgotten the kernel of what what um, fostered this whole. Well, I thought all the choices were really cool, though. What's you that? know, just the movies you picked. Oh, you said All about get any movies. You said movies any anyone you want. Wanted. Yeah, because uh, you do probably, two baseball movies in a row. That which, wasn't supposed to happen. Yeah. People didn't think that was a very good idea on my part. But I, but they were undeniable to me. They yeah, were just, they were just undeniable. And I, and I believe I'm a script guy, and I don't believe in the elements. I believe in the script. And you. So when get, you read the Bull Durham script, you must have gone nuts. No, it was it was it was. Uh, we didn't change a word. 
Yeah. I've had about 10 scripts like that where we really? can change a rower, which is probably maybe maybe eight more than most people. But they're always manipulating them. I've read some, I've been a part of some things that just didn't change because they were written and written and rewritten and I guess that's what written and written means, too. Yeah. You can need to catch me if, if, you, if you can. <laughs> we'll edit that out. But the idea of doing anything I want, yeah, I, and, and I remember, so I postponed dances. And then I got, now those two movies were over, and now I was prepping this movie. Couldn't get the money, found $9 bucks overseas. Both movies, two American movies I made, uh, Open Range and... and um, Dances with Wolves, I couldn't get them made at first here. And the first money came from overseas. Dances did, Open Range What's did. crazy is you couldn't get Dances made. You'd had like seven hits in a row. Yeah. It was, they didn't want to make it. So it was like, okay, I'm going to make this. What were they just thinking like that? Like, no, we're 18, well, I, well, 1800s Westerns. Well, here's the problem. The problem was me because I did tell them that it was going to be long. I told them ahead of time. I said, it's going to be three hours. I told everybody because I went through the system twice. Uh, finally on the last one at Warner Brothers when they said, we'd really like to do this. But the when he did the subtitles and I and they go, we, we, it's going to be long. It's going to be three hours and it's going to be subtitles. We'd really like to do this with you, Kevin, but we really, we don't think we can. And two guys who are my friends to this day and were really helpful in my career, they said no to me. And I said, just before I walked out the door, I was in with Jim Willis, my partner. I said, oh, I probably should let you know about one other thing. And they said, well, what's that? I go, I, I was going to have, I need, need to have final cut. And, and I got up and walked out. And as I walked out, my producing partner, if that was the door and this big round table and wonder, but as soon as we got another side of the door, and I use this for inspiration in, in 13 days, actually, uh, as soon as we got outside the door, the door shut and he goes, what was that about? Yeah. And he had to talk like that because everyone, what was yeah. that about? And I go, what was what about? He said, the final cut thing. Yeah. Why would you say final cut? And I said, well, didn't you hear him? And he goes, what? And he goes, they, they don't know that the subtitles are really important to the sense of humor. I said, Did, and they don't know that the length is really not intentional. It's just how long the story goes. I said, how can I let my film go to this place if we don't have final cut? Yeah. And then we walked down the hall. I mean, you had, there's 17 ways that film could have gone wrong if you didn't have final cut. Right. They could have said, like, hey, we took out a half and hour. It Listen, it all could have gone wrong with me because I was the only one that could ruin it once I decided to make it because yeah. I had a great script. Now I'm thinking, this is a great script, I'm, but I don't have a lot of experience here. So, you know. Um, and I you would, had to also be the lead actor in it. What's that? You had to be the yeah, lead actor yeah, yeah, in yeah, it yeah. and direct it, which yeah, exactly. I'm always amazed when anyone can do that. That's yeah, just really hard I don't to know. remember what you're performing. Bill Hader's, yeah. I'm friends with Bill Hader, who's doing that now with Barry, where he's directing a lot of the episodes, he's writing them, but he's also performing in it. And he said it really took him a couple episodes just to figure out how to just become these different people yeah. on the set, where I'm I'm in charge, but now I'm acting. My problem was I, I, I give myself too few takes. I kind of like do it. And then I start to move on, and, and finally my producing partner says, you need to give yourself more takes. You're just... You're not you're not rushing anybody else except yourself. Oh, that's interesting. You know, you're you know, don't rush yourself, you know. And so I, you need like an offensive coordinator to just get you to get get to do a second said, take. Give yourself another, you know, whatever. Do you do you know, don't rush yourself. Cause I was like, sometimes the scene wasn't over, I go, that's great, we got that. And it was like I realized the camera was on me. I'm looking at everybody else. Well, you also you'd hit this point. 
And I want to go backwards and talk about the two baseball movies in a second, but you would hit this point heading into that movie where people were like, ah, fuck this guy. He's going to direct a three-hour Western. Yeah. And you could— Well, none of them knew it was going to be three hours, but they were saying, fuck this guy. For he, some reason— He's going to direct and, it? And, and, and that, goes back to, wait, that goes back to your core question. You said, could you do anything you wanted? What happened was right after Field of Dreams and, and uh, Revenge, I get offered Hunt for Red October. Oh, and I seriously? And, yeah. And I, oh, you'd I, been good in that. And I had to say no because, and they go, what? And Mace Newfield, who I got uh, No Way Out made, he was the guy, but that movie wasn't getting made. It was in Turnaround. He was the producer of, of I think, of uh, Hunt for Red October. And they said it would pay me $5 million. That was like $4 million more than I'd ever been paid. It was also, That's I was like also, 30 now. I was also in the hole. Yeah. Um, with, having put my own money in uh, dances. So I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I'd like to do Hunt for Red October too. I'd yeah. like to have $5 million. I get it. But I gave my word I'm doing this movie. And that set off some weird drum wall that I turned my back on that. And now I'm out there doing some movie that's just going to tank. That started the drum roll from somewhere. I don't know who did it, why, but it was me being arrogant enough to say no to five million, but I wasn't saying no to that. I would have suggested that a hundred thousand times, but I had already said yes to something else, and I wasn't. I didn't realize you put your own money in Dances right. Wolves. Yeah, most yeah. people try not to do that. Well, I, I know. I, I listen. I'm. I like it. I'm a big bet on yeah, myself, guy. Yeah, one more good deal, and we're both out of business. <laughs> right. probably, probably, you know, I've had to do that, and I did that there. I mean, that movie cost sixteen million dollars. Yeah, it was a lot. But I didn't have to put in 16. I put it's up, funny, that uh, era of, so late 80s, early 90s was this era of movie coverage. You had Premiere Magazine. Yeah. Spy Magazine was out there. You had New York Magazine was writing about stuff. It was, And I remember reading all this stuff, being in college, and it was the first time I was aware of like the different narratives, not never knowing what was true. And one of the, I remember reading about like Costner's making this Western. Yeah. He's directing it. Yeah. And P I remember like the kind of snark yeah, that came with it. And yeah. and then it became obviously but I didn't way bigger hear, than I, the, the good news was I didn't hear about that till I came home. I was out in South Dakota for 108 days. Jesus. Most movies are like 50, 60 days. Well, I was this movie was taking it. You know, it was like I had to, you know, I had to, you know, I only went like three percent over budget, even though I went over all those days. You've really been in a lot of states. Yeah. You like you've been Iowa, South Dakota, yeah. Colorado. You yeah. you probably have the most interesting map of where you film <laughs> movies. Well, if you do a sequel, you go to the same state. <laughs> you know, if you do those things, you're gonna end up in the same places. But I you know I've Wait, been, go but let's go backwards a second to uh Bull Durham. Yeah. Was Crash Davis how much of Crash Davis was Crash Davis script Crash Davis and how much of it was Kevin Costner? taking the Crash Davis DNA. Yeah, well, Ron Ron, Ron split that up. But but the point was I never changed the dialogue. Because um, it always felt like that was like kind of alternate universe Kevin Costner in that movie. No, like if it, you had just been a minor league baseball player, that was Yeah. You. Well, you know, the one the one thing I got from Bull Durham, I bought that car. I Did that, you really? It's in my garage, that green that green Shelby. Seriously? Cobra. Seriously. I, I I got that. Put that thing on eBay. You could you could make Hunt, hunt for it October too. Just make fund some, it yourself. You could make some dough. That's so funny. Yeah, I wonder what that thing is worth. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Well, especially if it's the Bull Durham car. Yeah, it is. I would say that's worth like $700,000. Yeah. That won't make a movie these days. <laughs> no, it won't. It's indie. <laughs> <laughs> it won't make a movie. But Shelton, you know, he 
he's 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 this toughest guy you'll ever want to meet, and he's just got this heart of a poet. And uh, you know, he went he played against uh, he played with Gritch and Baylor in the in the Baltimore yeah organization. But you know, he was always kind of writing in the back of the bus, and um, and he wrote that he wrote that thing, and it was just letter perfect, and it was. Um, it was, I, you know, like Field of Dreams. I knew that was great. But no one was going to make that either because I'll tell you what happened. We tried to make it. We were like a couple of hookers on Santa Monica for a month trying to – I was going to everybody. I didn't go to Orion where I'd already made two movies with. Why? Why not go there? Well, there was a couple of reasons. One, they had two other baseball movies. They had Dangerfield's The Scout. And they had eight oh, men yeah, out. That didn't work. Eight, eight men, men out was good. And but the point was, they're not going to take on a third movie. So I didn't want to kind of push my yeah. friends into it. I thought, oh, so we went around, and um, no one would do it. No one would do it. Uh, finally, Fox was going to do it, but they they do it for four million. That's what they we it needed six million dollars to make this movie, but they had worked it so low that Ron was just looking at me. Then I get offered uh, Everybody's All-American, which I really liked. And I said to Ron, I go, Ron, we, you know, I, I, I like this movie, um, although it changed. And, and I, there was parts of it that I didn't like anymore on paper. But I wanted to do Everybody's All-American. But I said, I'll stick with you, but we can only go through this a little bit more. So we still didn't have any success. I decided I called the guys at Orion. I said, listen. Uh, this is a baseball movie. I said it's Thursday. I said it's great. Uh, I know your I know your foreign guy said there's no upside in this movie. Yeah. I said I think it's great, and I said but you're gonna have to tell me tomorrow at noon on Friday. That was Eric Kleskow, the same guy that I talked to about Silverado, right? And about five minutes to noon, he called me. He said we'll do it, and they they took Bull Durham. I mean, that's purely, we want to stay in the Kevin Costner business, I would guess. Yeah, I mean, maybe I, I, maybe I should have led with that, but I kept saying, the movie's great. <laughs> the movie's great. And they're going, movie, movie. Well, it was you great know? for you because it was a great part. It's become an iconic sports movie, but more importantly, you got to show off your baseball skills. Yeah. It was, and that was an era where before, before that movie, most times when people were in a movie, it was usually an actor they were shoehorning into a sports movie who couldn't actually... Carried. Everybody was so impressed. Like I, you looked like a catcher. I had a yeah. I had I had a thing happen on. You know, he went out and cast all the teams and uh, that we would play against, and they were all like double uh, A, triple A players. Yeah. And uh, they all came to the park, Bull Durham Park, and there, so there was sixty guys up there, and and they were you know they were dividing. They everybody established that they could play, but they were all having hitting practice, and I was really ducking my turn. I was just thinking, Jesus, I I was just kind of ducking my turn, and it was a big park. Grady Richardson, who actually coached the Atlanta, yeah, um, and he was the minor league guy, and he was in and so you felt like a ninth grader at varsity baseball tryout. I just or didn't something. want to go up there. I, you know, I hadn't really even worked out, but I, um, I, I remember finally I was like, wow, and I and it finally got to the point where I did, and nobody gave a shit who was hitting, yeah. But when I went up there, I could feel everybody kind of just stop talking because there was fifteen guys in right, there was yeah. six guys here or whatever. And, and they're like, oh, here comes something the big happened, shot. Something happened that never happened to me before. Number one, I, I went up there. I was really, really nervous. That's not what never happened before. But I was really nervous. And, I'm, and I remember the first pitch came. And um, 
I fouled it. Um, I fouled it straight down, but I fouled it. And um, which was which was the inspiration for me to just dribble that ball out and field of dreams. It just dribbled out. Like oh that. yeah, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember telling the, the director on field of dreams. I said, I said, wouldn't it be better if that I, I said it's really hard to miss a ball when you throw it up in the air. It's one of the hardest things to do is miss something on purpose. I can drop something legitimately, drop it, but to drop something on purpose, you, even Olivier can't do that. Yeah. It looks like you dropped it. I said, but if I hit the ball and it went. As as the guy playing with Shoeless Joe Jackson, you want to hit it out there for him. You really want to, think, and I, I. So I said, rather than miss it, what if I top this ball and it just dribbles out six feet where I have to go get it? And he goes, you can do that. And I said, yeah, I, I play street ball a lot. I can yeah. do that. So I did that. That was the inspiration. But that same thing happened to me, right there in Bull Durham. I take a swing and I hit it, and where I should have been humiliated, I wasn't. I was thinking. Shit, man. At least I, okay. I just I cut tipped, some wood on I it. Tipped, I just I just tipped it, and it was like my first cut. I tipped it. So the second pitch, I hit what only could be termed as the softest line drive you'd ever want to see. It just had no nothing on it. It kind of a number. Would, it wouldn't even have bent the grass if it hit it. But it went to the shortstop out there. There was three or four shortstops because everybody was hanging out. He just kind of put his glove up, and it was kind of limply. <laughs> it had nothing on it, right? And I stepped out of the box and I go, what is wrong with you? Yeah. The same talk I had with myself in college that I'm going to do this. I'm going to take control of my life. I had right there. I really? Said, I said, I'm the only guy here who has a job. Are you kidding me? I'm, I'm making over a million dollars. I'm the only one here who has a job. And I stood back in there and something happened that never happened before and didn't really happen that day. I hit it over the fence at like 365. Wow. I'd never hit a home run in organized baseball. In all the baseball I ever played, I was never a home run here. I had a couple in the side the park. Never hit one in Little League, in Babe Ruth, in high school. Never hit a home run. I'm 28 years old, 29 years old. I hit my first home run right in front of all these guys. And then you have to act cool. Well, I, I was. I didn't have to run. If I had to run, I yeah. might, But I hit a home run. That's and amazing. My and I've I've had these kind of moments in sports, and that was a moment. Yeah. So that was it. You had the confidence after that. Yeah. Well, I had the confidence when I had the talk. It wasn't the hit that did. See, it. are you are you taking notes, Kyle? This is what you need to do. You just think, take deep breath. Remember who you are. The talk was next the time thing. you play sports. The talk was yeah, the thing. Self talk. Okay, that thing was what everybody else saw. Yeah. Me driving down the freeway after getting the part in Big Chill. My career had changed. Yeah. In the freeway, it had changed. I know when I talked to you about when the momentum of something changes, you feel it. Yeah. I, when I had that talk, I was, that's where it happened. The swing was what the swing was, what the world gets to see. But it's not always defining who you are. Hey, let's take a break. Talk about Google Fi. Doesn't it feel like most phone plans just weren't made with us in mind? Between bad coverage, paying too much for data you don't ever actually use, and crazy roaming charges, Google Fi is a phone plan by Google made with features that people like you and I actually want. Features like free international roaming, so you never have to worry about calling up your provider to let them know you'll be traveling. Three networks in one, so you can stay connected wherever you are from your home to your office and everywhere in between. Google Fi works on your favorite smartphones. You don't have to switch phones just to switch plans. It's as easy as just downloading the app. And you only have to pay for the data you use. Plus, with bill protection, 
If you ever do use a lot of data, your bill is capped at a reasonable amount. Learn more at fi.google.com. That is fi.google.com. Switch to Google Fi, a phone plan by Google. And since we're here, don't forget about the rewatchables. Reservoir Dogs coming Friday here, Tarantino Week on The Ringer. Check that out. Check out the little special three podcast thing we did on uh, on the old Halloween on Mass Feed. Check out the big picture with Sean Fennessy, all that stuff. Tarantino Week. Let's go. All right. Back to Kevin Costner. Did you click with Susan Sarandon right away? Pardon me? Did you click with her right away? Yeah. The interesting- that, how does that work with actors? Well, let like me, sometimes well, it's let there. Let me tell you what. You want to see a heavyweight fight? There was a heavyweight fight there. And I'll tell you what it was. This part was as good as Crash's part. Yeah. That her part was as good as Crash. Nuke had a fabulous part. But but that was a that was a career changing part for someone. And it came down to two actors. And I'm not going to tell you who the other one was. Oh, come on. No, it's I can't. It's been 30 years. No, I can't because because the reality is it broke my heart because I knew. And the person went up for it was really good. Yeah. Really good. Sexy, smart actress. And I thought, these two women. Both, if you were a beginning actress, you don't even stand a chance against them because what was on the line there was a second half of a career. Yeah. A second career. And Sarandon came in and Ron had to choose between two great actresses Ugh. and Sarandon got it. And I, I, she was- And I you're mean, right. It, it's her next eight and, years of her but, career. But, were, but it's so weird. Everybody's looking at who got it. And for some reason, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking the other actress. Uh, I'm thinking, because Sarandon went on a Sean Connery run. Yeah. Like what happened, you know, where's where's uh, Sean after Bond or something? She was always a great actress. She had a really great career. There's this like little middle ground. And then Bull Durham came along and she just showed everybody who she was for the next 25 years. Yeah. That was that big a role. And so- I kind of go through this business looking sometimes not at what everybody else is looking at. Well, she's somebody. Look who won. I'm looking, I'm looking at like, look who lost. What? Yeah. You know what I mean? I see a different narrative a lot of times in what I see. She's somebody that almost like an athlete was like a lottery pick. Like she had been in a couple of really good movies a little bit earlier. And then as sometimes happens with actresses. Sometimes you get a couple of the wrong parts. There's less parts in it's general. A, it, yeah, and, and she and was, you can go five years and not have a good exactly. part. Exactly. But that was a that was a that was a complete so I'm always cognizant of that, you know, when I'm giving parts that you change lives. Cause remember Atlantic City with Burt Lancaster? Yes. Like she was like, you would you left that movie, you're like, all right, she's a star. That's and right. Sometimes you don't get the part for a and, while. And um but she, that girl uh, was like felt like a best friend. Can you explain the Tim Robbins throwing motion to me? So he did he throw out his arm? What happened? It's the no, flaw of the movie. Listen, he he you know I, you know I don't think it's just hard to buy that he's throwing ninety nine miles no, an hour. No, no, of course not. Yeah, of course not. You see that perfectly. But that's that's what's so interesting about sports. And yeah, about thing because understand something, Olivier. If he can't really pitch, he might be the greatest actor that ever lived. He ain't gonna make it in yeah. a baseball movie. And and even the non-athlete can look at somebody who is not an athlete and can tell. There's something undeniable about that. Tim played the role, but you can't really always fake baseball. You just can't yeah. do it. It's 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 a, it, there's a reality thing there. But Ron totally supported him, 
and he was everything we needed him to be. But it, but it, but but you're not wrong about you know you know what you what you see or what you saw. You can't. It's hard to throw ninety anyway. I, I threw eighty four. Would you throw in for love of the game? Were you eighty four? That was eighty four. Well, you were older then though. Yeah. Were you really, were you 40 at that point? You must have been. Yeah, I was over 40. I yeah. Think. Ricky Green was the umpire. He's the one that told me. Ricky was a, a national, he was a, 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 a professional baseball um, ref. Yeah. And uh, umpire. And um, I happened, you know, I, I tried to be careful with all those young guys because they were out of the farm system too. I, I had brought my uh, friend Augie Garrido in to play the manager of the Yankees. Yeah. And then he would also go pick the other athletes that would play in the movie that weren't, have, didn't have really speaking roles. So Augie came and, 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 and he did all that. And I was real conscious because a lot of these guys, you know, had an opportunity at careers. You know, and the last thing I needed to do was hit them because I was getting revved up in front of a crowd and throwing and hitting them. How many and, people at the at those at for love of the game? Did you? Ha how many extras were? They in probably the three or four thousand, five thousand. Sometimes maybe not that. I mean, I don't. We moved them around. Yeah, there's a couple of stories there that you can't believe. Maybe I will get to. <laughs> but anyway, with with that thing, I never. I was throwing about two, 300 pitches a day for about 18 days. It's one of the great pitching performances in the history of baseball. And I, I don't was, know how you didn't blow your rotator cuff I out. I was in pain. And Rich Hilly Davis came back, and I was I was in a thing. He goes, good God, what's happened to this guy? He just came back from the World Series. And I was in there, and, and the blood was pumping at my heart on everything. And I finally just vomited. The pain was so great. And Chili goes, what are you guys doing? And they were doing everything wrong. We ended up getting the manager, the actual trainer for the Yankees. And I hope I'm not talking out of school here, but the reality was this guy came to my rescue. I started having to take a little bit of stuff. Yeah. I had to start to take a lot of stuff. Some recovery. At, well, just to get Recovery through the drugs. day. Yeah. There's no recovery. You weren't getting suspended. Well, yeah, it's, it's that was my point to yeah. him on the last night, and I'll tell you that story. I used David Cohen. <laughs> and um, so I was throwing that many pitches, and I was also getting kind of juiced up, too. Yeah. And on the last day, we decided we were going, not decide, we knew we were going to do it. We were going to simulate the whole game day into night. Starts in a day, end of night, six cameras, all the same cameras that the TV at that time was actually covering Major League Baseball, all the same angles. So it was like a real, real game. I actually think it's some of the best baseball footage ever done by in a the, sports movie. And by that time, thanks. And by that time, um, everybody knew the game. Everybody knew the pitches. Everybody knew what each batter was supposed to do. But I was going to have to go out and pitch for about five and a half hours, six hours. And so I get the trainer and I said, hey, like man. Cy Young in the 1800s. I said, I said, I got him. And I said, hey, look, what if you had a player who was never going to play again? David Cohn, this is his last game. You needed yeah. the game. You didn't want to do certain things. But David says you need to do it. I need to do this thing. I said, I'm not going to get through this. And I said, whatever we've been doing, how this dose has been going up. Yeah. We have to, we have to go higher. I said, I have to, I have to, you know what I have to do now. Cause he didn't even know how a movie worked by now. He'd seen what I'd been going through. I said, I can't get through this. I said, we have to, I said, I need a couple green ones. I need the blue ones. And I said, I need one that you haven't brought out yet. <laughs> I need whatever you haven't brought out yet. It's what Kyle's taking later. And cause this is in a day. And I looked at him, I was serious. I said, I need to do this because I can't not go anywhere. There's six cameras. We're going through the night. And Steve looked at me and he's like, Okay. And so we took him, 
Um, he put a bunch on my arm, wrapped my arm, was going to start in the daylight. And I start to go up the steps. And the last thing he says to me as I'm walking up that steps, he said, you're going to growl at a few people. <laughs> and I'm thinking, how hyped up am I going to be? But that was his words to me. I'll never forget him. You're going to growl at a few people. And I remember that scene where I almost hit that guy. Yeah. Um, in the one pitch, I, I, you know, I almost blow the perfect game by throwing at him, you know, and he starts complaining. I come off that mound. I was like, <laughs> if you ever look at that thing, it was like he said something. I don't know what something snapped me. I came about 15 yards or 10 yard, 10 deep down the mound. When you're, when you're dead serious about something, you walk off the mound and you're like, <laughs> You know, Augie's like, you know, I mean, this guy's getting world-class athletes to come to Texas, you know, like, yeah. and it's like, it is what he is, but um, it's just what it was. It's just what it was. And I never had a a better time. And, 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 and in fact, I had this one crazy moment in that game uh, where the cameras, like you asked how many extras were, we moved them around and those extras out there, they were outrageous. They had gambling going on. They had prostitution going on because <laughs> they were there all night long. They, you know, they used cardboard cutouts to make the crowd look bigger. They'd cut holes down where their deal was. Oh and they God. would be there and their deal would be out, you know. And, you know, no one really know it, saw it, but the, I, that's what they were doing. Jesus. They were out of control. There were people that basically said, hey, do you want to make 150 bucks? And on anybody in the street, and they're like, yeah. <laughs> and they were the ones that were in the stand. And I had been really good to them. Really good to these people. I was throwing balls in there constantly. I fungoed them up. I'd throw it up into the upper deck to them. Ball. I was doing all this stuff. I was a little bit cranky too. And and other people were stiffing them. But I for 18 days, I kept those people happy. I really did. And now, for whatever reason, um, in the simulated game, I think it was that night, might not have, I think it was, a guy hits a, 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 a big pop fly uh, down the third base line between the dugout and the line. And I start to move on it because I just, you know, you just move on a ball. In big leagues, they let the third baseman get it. They let the catcher get it. I kind of went this way, and um, none of those guys go after it. And now I'm kind of in this middle ground. So I just kind of run over a little farther. And now I'm about 10 feet from the dugout. And, and all the crowd happened to be right there. They weren't over here. They weren't over here. They, weren't, they were right there. I catch the ball. And it's like, you know, I get, I, I get a little tennis clap because I catch it. I'm, I shouldn't, it's not going to ever be in the film because um, it wasn't, it wasn't it part out, yeah. of that, guy, that batter's thing. So I start walking back. And as I walk back, somebody in the crowd says, you know, you know, and there was something in me. They like they shut, they yelled a yeah, fuck yeah, you, Coster. Really yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, I was almost stepping over the line like Burt Lancaster, go back and pitch. And I stopped and I turned around and I walked right back to these 5,000 people who all kind of go, what's going on? Because they heard the guy say that. Now I'm right at the base of the dugout. And I go, I said something like, um, 
So yeah, yeah. F- I, yeah. Said, I said, you know, and everybody was like really quiet. And then it was kind of like a bummer to the whole thing, 18 days. And I go, you know, you know, never real quiet. Now I turn to go back to the mound. And they all turned on me really bad. <laughs> now I'm like, you know, if this was a Coliseum, it's like, oh my God, you, Billy Chapel, fuck <laughs> you, fuck you, fucking Billy Chapel. And I'm thinking, I'm walking back and I go, why did I even go over there? What the hell did I do? 18 days just like washed out, fuck you, Billy Chapel, fuck you, you know, that whole thing going on. And I'm thinking, wow. So I get back on the mound and look over there. I throw it, same thing happens. Big, pop fly, a major league pop fly right over in that same place. I take off running again there. I'm not even thinking. Now the third baseman catcher, they don't move either again. Now I'm in the middle ground. I really can't back out. The ball's coming down. They're going, fuck you, Billy, chop off. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm right here in front of these people again. And I go, catch it behind your back. And I think, I can't do that. I haven't done that since high school. Just catch it behind. And if I do that, they're going to be miserable. Catch it. I put my hand behind my back. And the ball went in. It went in to the glove. I kid you not. Ten feet from this crowd right at, at the thing. I don't even know why I did it because my chances of being humiliated were way yeah, greater yeah, yeah. than catching it. I'm just telling you. But it was that It was that 10 second. It was that talk in college. It was that thing. You got a job at Bull Durham. Get up there. And it's like, you know, whatever. I go, just do it. And I went like that and it went in. The oxygen went out. No one said a thing. I catch the ball. I just look at them. Look at that guy. I turn around. I walk back. And all the crowd turned on him and go, fuck you. That's Billy Chapel. You fucking, you're a, you know, they're calling him these vulgar, vulgar names. Yeah. They just turn on this guy who was like this. And I'm walking back. And it could have gone just as. Unbelievable. It was a weird moment. And it was more like, what do you care? Stick your glove out. And it went in. Well, and then they're filming the movie in sequence, basically, and you're actually dying on the mound like Billy Chapel. And then Vince Scully's going, there's Billy Chapel. Oh he can God. barely throw it. And they're cutting to you, and you look like you're dying on the mound because you actually are. Bill, Vince Scully, when I went to see him do that. He's amazing in that movie. Let me tell you something. That's kind of his best performance ever other than like a Colfax you, no-hitter. He, I went and saw him come narrate, and he narrated the, the last inning because it wasn't, you know, they didn't do it at that point. And he was down there in Santa Monica, and I went in with the director. And the director is like, okay, we're going to want you to do kind of this. And it's kind of like this. Take a look at this. You know, you know, take a, you know, this is this is how long the inning is. Well, let me see it. And so they kind of showed it to him, and it was like probably a seven-minute sequence or whatever. Yeah. And Vin goes, okay, well, let's just, let's just run it now. Billy Chapel, 40 years and old. And he's ad-libbing. I'm telling you, he, you know, will he live? Will he go on his life or his life itself? And he said, don't tell anybody that Forty doesn't believe. He, he's like going there, right? He gets, he gets to the end and he looks at the director and goes, you know, how was that? And, and, and we're like, like, how was, was like, and the director, <laughs> I remember Sam Raimi looked and he goes, that, well, that was unbelievable. Uh, and he goes, like, well, do you want to do another one? And 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 Vin goes, what? And he goes, well, maybe you just want to do another one. And and uh, it was a fair request, but Vin, Vin is like an He's artist. Done. He's sacred. Yeah. It's like, well, what, what? And he goes, well, maybe we'll just get something different. And and Vin goes, of course. And he did it again. And there was these other things that came up. And um, 
That's you know, I can't I believe you him, made him do it I again. I met him two times. You know, I, I met him really early in my career before I even maybe had one credit. It was at Lakeside at the golf course. Yeah. And there was a bunch of men out there. And, like, I didn't really play golf. And, and I maybe once a year with the father-in-law. And he was in that thing. You're not going to let me be late for Kimmel, are you? No. What time okay, did you cool. go to Kimmel? Cool. What time? I don't know. I don't care about it's Jim 2:30. anymore. I don't care about this Jim This is anymore. so much more fun. So anyway, I'm out there playing golf, and he's in this foursome, fivesome. Maybe I made it odd, but no one's saying anything, right? I mean, they're all playing, and I'm just struggling, doing the best I can. But the third hole, I'm just being really quiet. I've known him my whole life in white, grew up with him. Yeah. And uh, he looks over at me and he goes, sure putt, Kevy. Put a Y on my name. Sure cut, Kevy. That's never happened before, I'm guessing. My dad. Okay. Sure putt, Kevy. And I went like, he just made me feel so great. And then I wanted him to do this. And then he asked me to speak at his uh, retirement. Which um, you just said yes to immediately. You, no, I said, I, I said, no, no, no. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's at Dodger Stadium. Yeah. Did you see it? I did. You weren't in it? No, I, I did. Yeah, I, yeah. I spoke for about 10 minutes yeah. about him. How do you turn that request down? You because can't do that. Because you don't, if you have your shit together, you don't, you think there's 50 other people that should be talking here. I mean, it was going to be like three people. It was going to be Koufax, me, and Gibson. And I said, I said, there's got to be. There's three I, Hall of Famers. You're asking me. I'm telling you. I said, no, I was turning it down. I said, no. I said, uh, no, there's, you know, no. And it came back with, will you be the MC? And I said, no. I said, if you want a great MC, get Costas. I don't do that either. And they came back and said, no, Vin really wants you to do it. And, um, and I said, well, and they said, well, look, you just get up there and you'll do two minutes. And I said, I said, I'm not your guy. You know, I make three-hour movies. I said, I'm not looking to talk long, but if you want me to talk about Vin Scully, I'll talk till I'm done. Because I'm going to talk for everybody. And they went like, Steve Young, no, no, Mike Young. Yeah. When he worked for the Dodgers. That guy was great to me. He said, you do whatever you want, man. You do whatever you want. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah, whatever you want. And so I was able to um, talk about him. And, but those were my three times of really knowing him. All right, let's take a break to talk about WGU. It's an online university that's changing lives by changing higher education. It's an innovative, competency-based learning model, can't speak, was designed specifically to fit in the lives of busy adults. WGU is nonprofit and surprisingly affordable, offering bachelor's and master's degrees in business, IT, teaching, and nursing. Move through the material you already know. Spend the time you save learning what you don't which means the faster you demonstrate what you know, the faster you finish. It's also about half the cost of most other online universities, so you can graduate with far less debt or none at all. WGU graduates work in positions of responsibility for leading companies like Microsoft, Amazon, even the government. Get your $65 application fee waived at wgu.edu slash BS. That is wgu.edu slash BS. Well, the best thing I've seen you do in that front with the Whitney Houston thing was incredible. Well, that was an interesting moment too. You know, that was a, that was, I've had some interesting moments, you know, that was a, um, you know, that was, a, that was interesting. It seemed like I had no idea that you guys were close like that. 
Well, we weren't close like or that. like that you had a connection we I had guess. a real connection yeah. we had a real connection and it was it, it kind of started with the baptist church and it started with me seeing how how nervous she was and tired those stories about her makeup and having changed it between the time i say this yeah you're going to be okay and then she changed her makeup and just and then looked in the exact opposite way that she would have wanted to look so i was able to come at that from that perspective you know. That's an interesting movie. It's aged. It's a very 90s movie. It has one of the great endings of all time. And I don't know. It's it's just different. It's, yeah. I don't even know what the 2019 equivalent would be, who the actors would be, but it, feel, it feels like it belongs you know, to a specific era. That was era. Lawrence Kasdan's first script. Really? Yeah. He That was the first one he sold to Hollywood, and, and it sat on the shelf for 16 years. And I said, oh my I'm going to make this movie for you. And roll the dice with Whitney and hope she can act. And she was good in it. I, 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 felt, I felt that she wouldn't be tasked, taxed too much on it, meaning she had to be good, but it wasn't all riding on her. I, you know, yeah. it'd, be like, it'd be like taking an athlete and putting them in the wrong spot where they can't succeed. Yeah. You just go, you, you ask too much. On the other hand, in this, this the way that worked, if we watched her close enough, she would be great. But if we would have tipped the scale and added some more scenes, we she wouldn't have been great. Right. So it was you had to like you have to look at everything and see how it fits. It's like you just you you just have to make you have to you have to win with a team you either create or have. Yeah. And you gotta you have to um, look at the reality of that. We didn't talk about Field of Dreams, which just had its thirtieth anniversary. Field of Dreams. 30th anniversary was this year. Yeah. We have a podcast that people like called The Rewatchables where we broke it down. That's funny. Um, the Rewatchables. Well, that's like the ultimate rewatchable. Yeah, and it's, yeah. That has certain parts of that movie where we're like, oh, he's going to get James Earl Jones. I'm in. I'm going to watch these next 20 minutes. And it has all these yeah. hits. But It's not a gun. It's funny to watch. A gun. <laughs> I mean, it's such a good movie. What's interesting about it is it belongs to this era when we still believed everything good with baseball. And then over the next era with the, you know, you hit the late nineties, they had the strike, the lockout. Um, Didn't think about that. And actually. then you have the steroid era. I, didn't, I never thought about that way. And then it's like, cause James Earl Jones says that speech about baseball is a part of us. It mocks the time and yeah, he does the whole thing, but it's good. and could always be good. Yeah. And it's, so you watch that now in that prism and it's like, Oh, remember when we felt this way? I didn't. It's think so adorable. Yeah. Yeah. But that Gil, movie Gil Hodges, these these names, you know. Yeah, Mickey Mantle. Never thought of him as like anything other than just like yeah. the handsome center fielder on the Yanks. You know, um I uh, I heard that Ron Shelton um um was in the airport and he and he saw Mickey Mantle and um he told me this story and uh, I forget who told me this story, but he sees Mickey Mantle and he goes he goes, Ron, did you go up to him? He goes, no, no. I mean, that's sports guy. No, I don't do that. You yeah. Know, the, I, the old school is just what it is. No, I don't. Who would could love Mickey Mantle any more than somebody like Ron? Yeah. But no, no, no. And he goes, you should have. He was on Letterman last night. And our, I think that's how the story went. I said, what are you, he goes, what are you talking about? He goes, he's on Letterman and, 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 and. I could be getting this all wrong, but there, but this is what you know. Ron told me he says, and he was going off about the movie Bull Durham, and 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 he said something like Letterman was 
trying to, well, no, it's funny. And he goes, no, it's sad. Because no, it's funny. You know, Dave was, yeah. and finally then Dave, I guess, didn't try to turn him. He goes, well, what do you mean? Because he had a lot of deference to athletes in a way. Yeah. He really did. He, I mean, he, he he didn't suffer fools, but he also he also wouldn't try to make Mickey feel weird. Yeah. And, um, and he goes, no, that was sad. And what do you mean? He goes, well, that, that guy could really hit. And he goes, he goes, there's a lot of players that never made it into the National League. They just sat behind guys and organizations just kept him. And especially um, in his era. In his era. And and I and I know part of the reason that 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 Ron modeled Crash Davis was it was a player that uh sat behind Brooks Robinson and uh won the triple crown in the minor leagues like five years in a row. Right. And, so, and and they weren't going to give him up. That guy now, you know, is like you know they're. Did you did you think Field of Dreams is going to work? Yes, I mean it was super but not, ambitious, but not massively. Yeah, it was ambitious, and for a little movie, it was ambitious for one reason. It was like I uh, I had a real short intake of breath when I said, "Dad, can we have a catch?" I had to remember that moment forever because that's how I make decisions about am I going to do a movie, and I go, "Yeah." If we can get to that moment and take that moment where the hair on the back of your neck stands up and where you 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 begin to weep and you don't even know why, that means we're going to have to do all these scenes that are almost dopey yeah. correctly. They're dopey, but we didn't try to wink at it. That was It was real. It was that way, and, and that's what made that movie— dangerous hard because it always bordered on dopey to begin with yeah he's like a borderline lunatic and you and and then it's and then and then that's your big ending that's yeah. your big ending let's have a catch and uh phil robinson you know i get so much credit for this but phil robinson was the guy who wrote that adapted i would never would have done that movie based on a pitch i did it based on the script and i knew the script had gold dust on it. I didn't know, obviously, that it would become part of the vocabulary. I didn't know that 30 years later it would it would find its way into the hearts of people the way it did. But it found its way into my heart, and that's why I challenged Ray Stark on Revenge and said, I'm going to do this movie in the corner. Yeah. You know, we had a, like an eight-minute argument when we did the Rewatchables pod about why they didn't carry the choking little girl onto the baseball diamond so Burt Lancaster didn't have to become Burt Lancaster again. Why didn't... So she's choking. Moonlight Graham has to decide whether he wants to you cross the line long to help. Walk. You need that long. No, I know walk. that's where we settled down. But you I was need, like, couldn't yeah. he could just carry her on the field? Then he could have yeah, stayed in the yeah. game. No, it's a good point. <laughs> you, you just you know, and listen, movies are filled with those moments, and uh, only the best of them. You know, you're doing it honorably when you're laughing at it. Yeah. Yeah. But just <laughs> especially if you see it thirty She'll be times. Doing handsprings in no time at all. Right, right, right. You know, he struggled. You had a couple it, scenes with he, him. He struggled in an iconic scene. And uh, he was struggling that last night. He says, is there enough magic up there for you? Round third, wrap your arms around yeah. the things. He was struggling that night. And struggling because he's old or? Whatever it was. He yeah. couldn't get the lines. He was struggling. And he was getting embarrassed. And it was at night. It was, and, and it didn't look like he was going to get it. And he, and he, and he went over and he, he kind of whispered that he was kind of hoping that I would leave the set. Because I think he was embarrassed. Oh, interesting. And I said, no. I said, this is almost perfect. We've got it. We've got it perfect. Yeah. I just said, and I'm staying right here. This is fantastic. 
And the director hung in there, and Bert finally did it. Man, this guy really talked with his hands. Yeah. You know, a lot of actors, they say he was very histrionic. Yeah. He would use his hands, and he and he hit it, and I knew it was perfect, and I wasn't going to go anywhere. So now I'm right here. We're going to get through that, you know. So, you know, t tell me, Mr. Kinsella, is there enough magic in the air? One of the things in the research was you had like 10 minutes to film the final scene with the way the light was and all the cars and the guy you, you're throwing to your dad and he's got some glove from like 1910. Right. And he's got to catch everything in this like car. And he's kind of, it was kind of, <laughs> I'd say, in the Tim Robbins thing. Yeah. Vein of, th of things. If Didn't you have were, a great, throw, it, great it, throwing motion. It was a catch it and bring it down and, but in, in, in incredibly, um, and has carved out a great career over that movie. He, I read his book. He wrote a book. Yeah. Uh, about it, Dwyer Brown, and I had no idea how the hardships. But he has he has traveled the country the last twenty years, thirty years talking, and he's a and he deserves every bit of it because he's such a humble guy. But he's that career that that moment for him, he has made the most of it, and not in a not in a exploitive way. It's just he's had a hard up. Yeah. And I'm so glad it was him now. You know, that was another one of my nitpicks after seeing the movie 800 times. How does Ray not realize sooner his dad's the catcher? What's that? How does he not realize sooner that oh his dad's God, a catcher? You, you've just spent too they much had this, time on I know, this, this is the whole point of the rewatchables. You're, you're like, <laughs> this whole point of this interview five they're years playing, later. They're playing they're a five, pinning five me back game. with my ears. He can't, he, he, can't, he doesn't realize his dad's going, the catcher? He, Come like, on, Ray. Bill has thought more about this than you have, <laughs> Kevin. And it's clear. This is the point of that podcast. You know, what, what, wait, we got to do 10 cups. You're quick. seeing, what is, what is, what is, what is, what is, uh, um, uh, um, James L. Jordan saying, you're seeing an army of therapists, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no question. That's to you. <laughs> You've broken this down so beautifully. Look, what, that, that I had movie's trouble. been out for thirty listen, years. I, you know, listen, I got flacked about Leota not being hitting left-handed. I remember that. It was like, and I, you know, who I had out there it, as it, they had out there for um, the uh, consultant, the baseball consultant, Rod Dato. Really? Yeah, Rod was out there, and uh, hey, Tiger, you probably met him. That's that's he called everybody Tiger, and you know, he was like, oh man, Kevin, me and you are both going to get killed for this him hitting right-handed i said i got it i got it and i got it but you it, know what they would do now over, they would just flip the the mirror they would yeah. just flip the mirror flip and you'd never mirror. know exactly. or they would do some cgi thing or something i'm surprised you weren't drilling me on that one no because that's already been it, people it, know that it one. it beat me up on that no that people know that one i love i love the we had to give i love the why not just carry the child out because in a real in a real movie you would do that but in this thing we needed and no, that you, music you killed him us. Across the line. Oh my God! You said don't do it, and it's like, oh my God! You can't go back. Oh my God! We didn't talk about Tin Cup. So you go, you do dances, you do a whole bunch of movies in yeah. the nineties, yeah, and then you get sucked back. I, we, I, you got to leave since, so we got to do. We got to concentrate just on sports movies. No, I didn't know. Cup was the same thing. Um, Cup was, um, you know, I just, I just come out of Waterworld. I just come out of a, a, a divorce and uh i was i was pretty beat up and uh i said no to tin cup and even though i knew beat up more from the divorce or from Waterworld, well, or whole, both it, it was hard it was really it was one 150 day shoot 57 day shoot it was a lot 
And, um, and I, I couldn't, um, I, I, I just, I loved it, but I go, I gotta, I, I said, I'm, I'm just not going to go on to another movie. This is one of the, this is one of the times where an agent really went and not even my own agent went out on a limb and called me. Um, there's a woman over at CA and she says, Kevin, I feel like this is a movie you actually need to do. Yeah. Me, you know, emotionally get with your friend, Ron, who'll protect you, who will be with you, get with him. I don't want, I don't want to see anybody else play this guy. And, uh, she was right. She, uh, there was some extenuating circumstances. She, she, she understood what I said. She came at me like a really soft backboard and I was able to wrap my arms around going off and do that movie. And I'll, be forever thankful. Um, you know. Do you stand by the thirteen to end the movie? Was it a thirteen? What's that? What did, what did he? What did Roy have on the last hole? Twelve. A twelve? I always thought that should be our poster. Greatest twelve in history. <laughs> <laughs> Greatest twelve. In it's history. funny. I didn't like it the first time I saw it that it ended with the twelve because I just assumed he was going to win. We're conditioned the hero's going to win the sports movie. But no. now I'm glad it played out the way it did. The twelve was better. Glad you turned around on that. You have to go. Well, you just have to come back another time. This was fun, though, right? This we have so many other things we could uh, talk yeah, about. Yeah, I, the uh, when I come is this back, your first podcast? Have you no, done I one did, before? I did one. I did one. One others. One Who? Other. Um, my. This is bullshit. No, no, it's um. God, I'm dropping it. A friend of mine. Oh well, this is Jimmy Kimmel's best buddy. Uh, they, they did the man. Thing. Oh, Corolla. Steve, oh, that's right. I wasn't Adam, mad about that. Yeah. Adam, yeah. No, I've had Adam out to the house and I, yeah, I, I wasn't, just, I, I wasn't really, mad. You guys like cars. Like there's, yeah. Well, he likes cars. When I told him I had the car, I don't know cars. I yeah. just know I wanted that car. Yeah. Corolla, on the other hand, it goes, uh, and he, that guy is special. I really, I really like he's him. The funniest person I've ever met. I, I had him up to the house and he's like, he's just such a solid dude. Yeah. Um, all right, so you have to come back. This was great, though. I'm glad we finally did this. We yeah. at least did the sports movie. We didn't talk about draft day, but we can do that next time. Because now, now the Browns have basically taken draft day and they made it the real movie. And they, I mean, it's unbelievable. It they went and got Baker Mayfield. They turned it around. It's like yeah. you're the GM. Yeah, first they got um, um, what's this? Uh, Manziel. But yeah, they went, you know they, they that was the bad version of draft day. But that was that. What that's what draft day avoided. Right. That's what he voted. They didn't on. obviously didn't watch draft day. Yeah, yeah. So the um but now it got Baker, but listen, I will, I will do this. Thank you. All right, this is great. Thank you very much, Kevin Take Costner. Care. All right, thanks so much to Kevin Costner. Thanks to ZipCrew. Don't forget to go to zipcrew.com slash BS. Thanks to the Diamond Casino and Resort, now open in the heart of Los Santos, a one-stop destination for quality entertainment and high end living in Grand Theft Auto Online. Purchase a penthouse to become a VIP member and gain access to action-packed cooperative missions. Experience luxury at the Diamond Casino and Resort. The latest free update to Grand Theft Auto Online. Access is free with every copy of Grand Theft Auto Five available now at rockstargames.com. And thanks to WGU, an online university that's changing lives by changing higher education. Their competency-based learning model was designed specifically to fit in the lives of busy adults. And it's about half the cost of other online universities. They offer bachelor's and master's degrees in business, IT, teaching, and nursing. And graduates have gone on to work for leading companies like Microsoft and Amazon. Get your $65 application fee waived at wgu.edu. BS. 
Don't forget about two rewatchables. Top Gun, Reservoir Dogs, both up there. I'm going to be back on this podcast next week. Hopefully more sports stuff will happen. Until then. I want to see them on a waste of